Boy, I, I'll tell you, I, I asked for a piece of music 20 minutes from now, and all of a sudden our top of the hour intro is all screwed up. I don't know what to do now. I don't know what to do without the guy saying, it's the other side of midnight. And then the Wesley Snipes clip, you've got a strange program going on. Should, should we start over anything? Yeah, let's start over. Just let's start the show over. I don't, Re- know what even, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, start uh-oh. again. All right, let's start over. Here we go. Yeah, that's more like other side of midnight feel like with myself. Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, oh. y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. All right. All right. That's a lot better. Good morrow, everybody. Don't you feel more at ease now? I know I do. All right. Um, we got an action-packed show for you. We're going to talk about Ukraine, Russia, Saudi Arabia, American foreign policy in general with Trita Parsi. Coming up in about 20 minutes. We got the AC report coming up in in the 3 o'clock hour. The importance of anonymous speech in the 2 o'clock hour. But first, I asked Dominic Carter a few minutes ago, uh, actually a few minutes before his show, I said, you know, because the the lives of broadcasters are not exactly glamorous, whatever you say. So I think, I don't want to speak for Dominic, but myself, you know, every dollar I earn... I see it go out the door every dollar. And so I asked Dominic, what amount of money do you think is life changing? And then he discussed, well, it has to be a variety of factors. It depends if it's tax free. It depends where you are in your life. If you still have education to pay for, for children, if you're going to have more children, my answer might be different than your answer. And I think that's all fair. But sometimes it's fun to buy a lottery ticket, right? Now, you buy a lottery ticket. Buying a lottery ticket's not like going to the craps table at Atlantic City. When you go to the craps table, there's a decent chance that you're going to win and a very good chance that you lose. But even if you win, it's you're never going to win a life-changing amount of money. Same thing at the blackjack table. But you know, you have to really bet a lot to win a lot. I mean, for the most part. I mean, for the most part. If you buy a Mega Millions ticket or a Powerball ticket, that's a life-changing amount of money. That's an amount of money where you may now can buy yachts and mansions and fund uh, political campaigns of your choice and do all sorts of things. Start charities and all, all sorts of things. Help out family and friends. You can't do that with a good night at the craps table. So why do – now, the, when you buy a Mega Millions ticket or a Powerball ticket, you're obviously not going to win. So why do you do it? Because the fun part about buying that Mega Millions ticket or that Powerball ticket is in the amount of time between when you buy the ticket and when they draw the numbers. Because for that day or that two days or that hour or that five hours, what do you do? You picture what would it be like? What would it be like if I had $200 million dollars? How would that change my life? What would I spend it on? Now, i be honest. I get so into visualizing this stuff that I had to stop buying these tickets because it was so distracting and it was so stressful. I said, okay, well, if I give, I want to give my, I want to set my brother up with something. I have to give 
him 10,000. Well, if I give him 10,000, I have to give my, my other brother 10,000. Well, if I give both of my brothers 10,000, I have to give my sister at least 10,000. All right. Got to make sure I get my parents something. Maybe my, I got to get my mom. Maybe she'd prefer a house or something. Maybe I'll get her a house here. That's a million. Well, if I buy her a house, then I got to get my dad a house. So I, I became very stressful, right? The whole visualization thing. But whenever, whenever I see trends, that lead to a lot of money being made, it always sparks my interest. And there is a surprising trend that I read about in uh, the Wall Street Journal this week that I would not have thought of, but it makes perfect sense. There's one business, one industry, which is raking in the dough. So I'm always, I always kind of think to myself, I sort of daydream at night, what would it be like to... Do that as sort of a side business and make all sorts of money doing that. Sometimes the do that is political consulting. Sometimes it's uh, cryptocurrency. I said to my wife the other day, maybe I should become a crypto billionaire. And uh, she said, well, do you know anything about being about crypto or being a billionaire? I said, no. She said, all right, I'll give it a shot. And five minutes later, I was off of it. But I like to daydream and think about what would it be like to ride the wave of certain booms. There is a boom in this country going on right now, a gold mine, a gold rush of 1849 proportions in a sector that I think you would never think of. I certainly hadn't thought of it. You ready for this? You want to make some money? One word. Plastics. I'm just joking. That's from The Graduate. One word. Tutoring. Tutoring companies are cashing in like you wouldn't believe on tens of billions of federal dollars. This money was doled out to America's schools to help kids catch up after pandemic setbacks. Many of these companies have unproven methods and offer online tutoring. Now, online tutoring. If there's one common trend that we've seen on this show from parents, from educators, from students themselves, from critics of COVID restrictions, it's that this is the same type of learning, the remote learning or the online learning, that left kids behind in the pandemic. Well, right now, if you have an online tutoring company, you can make a mint. And the federal government is just handing out these this money to do online tutoring. Listen to these numbers. The government allotted, federal government, $122 billion in COVID relief money for schools to address the stunning learning loss. One in three students in kindergarten through second grade are missing reading benchmarks. Now, here's what's amazing. The school's have to use the cash before it expires in 2024. So there's a year and a half, basically, that the schools are going to be in a mad dash to spend all this, what they view as free money. Of course, there's no such thing as free money, but these schools have to spend this money. So this is turning online tutoring into a booming business, attracting all sorts of venture venture capital dollars, eight-figure contracts with school districts around the country. So I was thinking to myself, hey, maybe I can do this. Well, I don't really know anything about anything, but maybe I could do, I don't know, maybe I could tutor people in, I don't know, civics, 
or or radio broadcasting. I don't, I don't, there's not much that I know about, but it, it doesn't seem to be like there's much quality control here in monitoring the efficacy of these online tutors. So this pandemic era influx of cash into new education technology could be a boon for students by revolutionizing learning the same way that new technology and products have changed the way we work, enabling things like remote learning and Zoom meetings and all that horrible stuff. But these companies would have to stick to proven standards like one-on-one coaching from well-trained instructors. I'm curious what you make of this. 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Particularly if you're an educator, a school administrator, a principal, or a parent, have you seen your school district being affected by this dramatic increase, this explosion in federal dollars for online tutoring. And secondarily, if you're if you've got a little entrepreneurial spirit to you, would you consider within the next year and a half taking advantage of this? Because it looks like there's a lot of money out there in the tutoring business just waiting to be claimed. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is going to be here in about 10 minutes. I'm going to talk with Trita about uh, about Ukraine and Russia, a bunch of other things as well. And uh, we'll talk about foreign policy and, and some other things. Now, I don't know if you heard my discussion yesterday about the Boston Marathon prohibiting any runners from Russia or Belarus from participating in the marathon. Idiotic, in my view. Now Wimbledon is doing the same thing. So I'm going to ask Trita about that. And a follow-up to the story that we did 24 hours ago. Uh, Today's the first day that you can buy legal marijuana, recreational marijuana, in the state of New Jersey. And there was a lot of concern about what police departments are going to be doing on this. Well, I don't want to say this was because of me, but you know, it happened a day after we were speaking about this, and I didn't see any other media coverage of this. So the mayor of Jersey City, Steve Fulop, you might have heard Bob Brown say this at the top of the hour. He has said his police officers will not be allowed to smoke or use marijuana, even when they're off duty. So you have a situation, at least in Jersey City, where police officers cannot enjoy the same legal substance that police officers can in every other municipality in New Jersey and that every other New Jerseyan can do. So I think it's actually a sound policy because of the reasons that I stated yesterday. But it is interesting that uh, Steve Fulop, on the very first day of this, rushed into action on this. 800-848-9222. What better way to kick things off than with... Tom from the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Uh, Hi, Frank. I'd like to say that there used to be a television show, Bowling for Dollars, but I think this is Scam for Dollars. In other words, uh, 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 having tutors over the, uh, I mean, over the, uh, uh, having tutors over the computer system to me is a scam. And this is just another way they're putting their hands in the public pocket again. I don't think I think the results are going to be very dismal, and that's my assessment. Well, you might be right, Tom. I have to be honest with you. I share your pessimism, and uh, I think this is a money grab. But if there's a money grab going on, I'd like to grab some of the money, quite frankly. 
800-848-WABC. Look, I'm being somewhat facetious, but I think there are a lot of people that have that precise attitude. Additionally, I think that um, there is a way to make money and help students that are in need of tutoring because of the struggles that we've seen with education right now and and have seen over the course of the last two years. Wondering if there's a way to do both. Now, honestly, I don't think I would have the time to launch a tutoring business, but maybe I can lend my good name to someone that wants to do the actual work of an online tutoring business. So, I don't know. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Curious if you have uh, have noticed this in your school district, particularly if you're a teacher or an, or an educator. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, hi, hi. Uh, I wanted to say you were having uh, lots of stress just imagining, visualizing, winning. Thank God you didn't win. Exactly! It's... It, 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 I'm saying it semi-facetiously, but the truth is that winning is not as much, and not that I ever won, I wish I would, but it, it's, it ends up not being great, and I think 90, 95% of people lose it within two to three years. I'm not sure if I'm right. I, I don't think like it's that, that high, but it's high. Uh, you're right, uh, because people think they don't learn money management skills. You're right about that, and we see this with a lot of other wealthy people. Look, MC Hammer, uh, he lost all his money, went bankrupt because of all the wacky people that he had on his payroll. Uh, there was a business dispute that Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld made hundreds of millions of dollars just from that TV show. That's putting aside what he was making on stand-up, but there was a business dispute that he had with uh, with someone, and uh, this is someone that alleged that Jerry stole the idea for comedians in cars drinking coffee with him, which is actually a great show. It's one of my wife's favorite shows. I really enjoy it, too, depending on who the guest is. But this guy paints a picture of Jerry Seinfeld's finances. Now, if you think of somebody that shouldn't have financial problems, it's Jerry Seinfeld. But Jerry, apparently, at least according to this one lawsuit, which, again, nobody should ever take as gospel, uh, was having a very tough time paying his bills because of the he was spending like crazy. Neil's on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Yeah, Frank. Uh, why do you have to uh, actually tutor anyone? Why don't you just say you're going to tutor and make the money that way? Well, I, I see. I see that idea does have a certain appeal. However, I don't want to commit fraud, you know? I mean, it's like you can make money by taking advantage of New York City's absurd campaign finance system, but if you don't do at least some ostensible uh, something for it, then that's fraud. I mean, I don't want to go to prison. I don't want gold-plated handcuffs. I I understand, but, you know, during the pandemic, uh, when, uh, when things weren't going well, I know people who drove for Uber. Who put in for unemployment and uh, guys that did black cards put in for unemployment, they weren't entitled to it. Guys even took out SBA uh, grants and they got $50,000. The government just gave them money well, <laughs> without even checking. Yeah, I mean, it is, you're right, Neil, and I've seen it too. And that's what we're going to see here. That's precisely my fear. Trita Parsi is going to join me in a minute. Those of you that are holding, we will get to you if you want to hold, otherwise, call back. We'll get to you after we talk with Trita Parsi. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. WABC. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Moreno. It seems like the more questions there are about foreign affairs, we're only left with more questions. How does what's happening in Ukraine affect what's happening in the United States? How does what's happening in Afghanistan affect what's happening in China? How does what's happening in Taiwan affect what's happening in Russia? There's this interconnectedness of global affairs where it often seems there are these unlikely allies, there seems there are these unlikely adversaries, and it seems like no matter which way you turn, there are only bad options. At least that ha- that's how it so often seems. Well, uh, at times like these, we're very, very lucky to have a think tank like the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. That may be my favorite think tank, and in an era where we have uh, people in both parties, uh, cable news pundits on conservative outlets and liberal outlets, all seeming to clamor for more more and more war. I'm glad the Quincy Institute is there, and I'm very, very pleased to welcome a writer uh, that I have a great deal of respect for who's caused me to think differently, not only about foreign policy, but American policy with respect to defense procurement issues, international affairs, and a whole bunch of other issues. Trita Parsi, he happens to be the co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's also the founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. Uh, Trita Parsi, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me, Frank. It's always a pleasure. So for folks that aren't familiar with the Quincy Institute, what is it exactly? So it's a think tank in Washington that in many ways is unique because at the core of our mission is to shift American grand strategy, meaning that framework of our foreign policy away from one that is constantly getting into these endless wars and towards a, a strategy that is centered on diplomacy and military restraint. We believe that if we pursue the policy in which we're no longer seeking to dominate every corner of the globe, the American people would actually become more safe and more resources would be available for us to spend at home on our own people rather than on waging war abroad. Well, it seems uh, a little unusual to name a uh, think tank after Quincy Jones. I mean, a great musician, to be sure. But really, <laughs> why would you name a think tank after him? <laughs> well, obviously, we're, we're, we're naming it after John Quincy Adams, who in 1821 gave a fantastic speech in which he said, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And he was making the case that if America pursued that path of this uh, interventionist uh, foreign policy, it could become the dictresses of the world, but it would come at the expense of her own spirit and her own liberty. And that is exactly what we think we have seen after 20 years of the war on terror. We've seen that so much of that has come at the expense of the American public's own civil liberties. I'm sorry to ask a question which may sound silly or elementary, but unfortunately I have to ask it because these days when people hear opinions when they hear expertise from anyone, they almost have to guard themselves against bias depending on the ideology. Now, the Quincy Institute, are you guys liberal or are you conservative? We're both. Uh, we have people that are on the conservative side where people on who are, are on the liberal side. We believe that there is a significant overlap between people on the left and the right who both 
are in opposition to the foreign policy that we have been pursuing for the last two decades. We want to see less war and more resources and focus on our own people back home. Uh, those elements exist on both sides, and we want to unite them to be able to pose the best possible challenge that we can to those who are constantly dragging us into new wars. That's why, uh, on at least on foreign policy issues, sometimes Donald Trump and Pat Buchanan can sound a lot like Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, all right, let's talk about the Russia-Ukraine situation, which uh, the whole world's been fixated upon for the last two months. And uh, you look at the coverage of what's happening there and you only shake your head because it only seems to be growing more and more sad by the day. Um, there's a there's a narrative that has taken shape in the United States on the media, on most of the major news outlets. That's very clear that uh, Russia is the bad guy here. They are on the side of evil. The Ukrainians are on the side of good. And the more that the United States can do to aid the Ukrainians, that is us being on the side of the angels. Uh, you've written and, and spoken out about how many internationally view this situation a bit differently than the United States media does. Why would people internationally view the situation as anything other than Russia being the bad guy here? Well, I think a lot of countries in the global south, which I focused on in that article, do believe that Russia is the aggressor. They're the ones who have invaded Ukraine. They're the ones who are bombing the country right now. It's not Ukraine who has invaded Russia. And they recognize that, and they do see Russia as having violated international law and international norms, where they find themselves often in disagreement with the United States is when we are framing this issue, not only in terms of good and evil and, you know, as if this is another episode of Star Wars, but also because we are framing it as if this is a battle about the future of the rules-based order. That's when we lose a lot of other countries because the old, uh, you know, the one that we have been uh, living in, this rules-based order, is one in which a lot of countries outside of the United States feel that they got a pretty bad shake, that uh, the United States was acting outside of international law, above the law, invaded countries, overthrew regimes, had waged endless war, and it did so with impunity. So they're not going to be on the side of trying to sustain that order. They want to see a much different order in which the United States will be their friend. They will be in support of the United States, but they don't want to see the United States being able to act in the manner that we have acted in the last 20 years, because it's come not only at our own expense, but it certainly has come at the expense of these countries abroad as well. So that's where we're losing them. When we're trying to portray this as if this is the future of the rules-based order, they, we all, many of these countries actually end up on the Russian side because they prefer a multipolar world where great powers actually balance each other rather than the one that we have lived in for the last 25 years. So keeping that in mind, uh, the fact that a lot of uh, international uh, stakeholders are actually not really part of this Western coalition at this point, at this point, what and just keeping in mind the fact that the United States and Russia are the two biggest nuclear powers on the planet. And the last thing I think anybody wants is an armed confrontation between those two countries, given those facts. 
what should the United States do with respect to Ukraine? You have some who say that uh, the United States should be working to effect a diplomatic settlement. You have others that say the United States should be giving the Ukrainians anything they want in terms of military aid, including if that requires a no-fly zone, and that's the only thing keeping the Ukrainians alive. From where you stand, what should the United States be doing policy-wise at this point? First order of business is to make sure that we are not dragged into this war because that would end up becoming a nuclear war. And that would be the end of the planet. It would be, if you want to support Ukrainians, uh, it doesn't make much sense to blow up the planet, right? So first order business is to make sure that we are outside of this war, that we're not directly belligerent in it. Secondly, I think we have to work hard to get to a diplomatic solution. As Zelensky himself has said, this would end with some form of a diplomatic settlement. It's not going to end um, uh, just on, on the military uh, field. It's going to end with the two sides talking to each other and coming to some form of agreement. It will likely be an ugly agreement. Don't expect anything beautiful to come out of a war of this kind. But an agreement that ends the fighting at the end of the day is the most important thing that can be achieved at this point. And then once the fighting has ended, one has to negotiate further to make sure that the agreement is one that is sustainable and is not going to cause a new war. That it's not just a respite between wars, but actually something that truly puts an end to the war. No fly zones and measures of that kind that is likely going to lead to Russian retaliation against NATO troops will drag the U.S. into the war and it will be to the detriment of everyone. So I think it's critical to make sure that we walk a fine balance in which whether there is support to the Ukrainians uh, in order, and if there is support, in our, my view, it should be support to make sure that we as quickly as possible get to a serious negotiation. Not a support in order to drag on that war, or as some in Washington say, we have to use this war to truly crush Russia. If those are the objectives, we're going to see a very long war, and it's going to be a war that very likely will drag in the United States in it fully. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Trita Parsi. He's the co-founder and the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. There's been a lot of framing of Vladimir Putin as an international criminal here. President Zelensky, President Biden, President Trump have all used the term genocide to to, uh, to describe what Putin's doing in Ukraine. There's a lot of folks that want Putin to stand trial at The Hague, at the International Criminal Court. It was very interesting that when uh, Admiral Kirby was on MSNBC with Ari Melber the other day, Ari Melber actually asked him, well, look, why isn't the United States part of the International Criminal Court? When the president said that has not changed the Pentagon's position that war criminal or not, there won't be U.S. support for the ICC to hold that trial, to deal with the evidence you just referenced. Right. Well, I won't speak for the entire U.S. government here, but here in the Pentagon, we've we've been clear about our concerns about the the ICC and some of their activities and and the potential ramifications for American servicemen and women who are serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think we've been very clear about that. In your view, Trita, how does the United States justify labeling Putin an international criminal, supporting him being tried at The Hague, while we ourselves are not members of the International Criminal Court? 
That's the contradiction. That is the double standard that is causing a lot of countries worldwide, particularly in the global south, not wanting to buy into this frame that this is a battle for the future of the rules-based order. Because that rules-based order was one in which the United States not only stood outside of the International Criminal Court, but keep in mind, we even sanctioned the judges of that court. We impeded that court. But then when it's convenient for us, we want to use it to drag Putin or someone else there. It, the world no longer will be able to work in this way. There has to be some degree of consistency. If we want to have the ability of rallying the world around us when we believe that there is uh, a world leader has committed uh, 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 war crimes, well, then we will have to ourselves submit ourselves to that court, be part of that court. Otherwise, we cannot use that court. So these contradictions are coming back to bite us in the ass right now. And I think instead of saying we should not be pursuing war crimes against Putin, if those have occurred, I mean, those need to be investigated, what we should be doing is doing both. We should become a member of the criminal uh, International Criminal Court. We should abide by its decisions. Uh, but, and we should also take advantage of the fact that if other countries are committing these crimes, instead of going to war with them, we should be using the courts to be able to find a better path to justice. In, in your view, why have there been so few dissenting voices on American media about this Russia-Ukraine conflict? You know, I watched some uh, European press, uh, the British and uh, uh, other international press, and there are robust debates about how various countries should be handling this Russia-Ukraine conflict. With the exception of maybe Tucker Carlson in this country, I don't see any major uh, news commentator on the left, on the right, very few opinion columnists in any of the major newspapers questioning the conventional narrative that Washington is putting out. In a country that seems to be never lacking for opinions, why is it so difficult to find diverse views reflected on this question in the American media, in your opinion? I think that's a great question. It's not just about having diverse views. It's also about having the debate, as you mentioned. We rarely have a good debate on foreign policy. It is, this is unfortunately not the exception. It's almost always the case. It very quickly becomes emotional. It very quickly becomes that if you express a view that is contrary to the conventional wisdom, and the conventional wisdom is decided upon rather quickly by uh, uh, not necessarily a majority, uh, then you are deemed to be an apologist for this person or for that country. It is an extremely unhealthy manner to conduct foreign policy. It is not surprising to me that when we have a debate of this low quality, we oftentimes commit major mistakes and pursue policies that are quite erroneous, not just to other countries, but for ourselves. These are policies that are counterproductive to American interests. Invading Iraq, regime change in Libya, all of these different things have not in any way, shape, or form enhanced American security. And when we have such a limited, narrow, and low-quality debate, we really cannot have the expectations that excellent decisions will come out of those debates.
There was one report that I saw, might have been more than one, but one that I took note of, that shows American Pentagon contractors are cashing in big time as a result of this Russian-Ukrainian conflict. I'm wondering if you can speak to that at all, and I'm wondering if you think that is driving the policy narrative and the discussion in this country at all. It is quite concerning to see how the weapons producers have now presented themselves as being the defenders of freedom because they're producing many of these uh, weapons that are now being sent to Ukraine or sold to Ukraine. Um, They are definitely cashing in on this. I'm not so sure they're necessarily driving it. I wouldn't say I wouldn't be able to make a decision, you know, a determination on that on the Ukraine case. I can say, however, that in the case of Yemen, I do believe that the interest and the profits of American weapons producers has become a very, very important factor on U.S. policy in which we are sustaining that war. All of the things we're saying that the Russians are doing in Ukraine, and I think the Russians are doing a lot of those different things, the Saudis are doing in Yemen, and we are arming the Saudis. We are selling weapons and munitions, intelligence to them, and we are enabling them to do those exact same things. The difference is that war has gone on for seven years. More than 400,000 people have been killed, whereas the war in Ukraine has gone on for about two months at this point. Uh, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Trita Parsi. He's with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, well, I want to ask you about the Saudi Arabia Yemen situation. But one last question as it relates to Russia. We saw on Monday the Boston Marathon took place. R- athletes from Russia and Belarus were prohibited from participating. Now we're seeing the Wimbledon tennis tournament um, ban Russian athletes from participating in that also, something that I don't think they've done with any country since World War II. Uh, it, does that make sense? Do Russian athletes tend to drive a lot of Russian foreign policies by <laughs> by by prohibiting Russian athletes? Are we helping bring about a speedy end to this war in Ukraine? We are certainly not. On the contrary, I think that type of action, where we are truly mixing politics and sports in a manner that supposedly goes against our principles, because usually we're the ones who are saying that's absolutely wrong if other countries do these things. Uh, But what we're doing is that, frankly, we're enabling Putin to push his narrative that this is not uh, a Western opposition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but rather this is the West trying to destroy the Russian nation and people as a whole. When we are targeting Russian people, that makes it easier for Putin to make that claim. So I don't see this being particularly uh, effective. On the contrary, I think it is not only counterproductive, but I think it goes against the very principles that we've been seeking to uphold, which is, you know, sports is a way of uniting people and overcoming conflict. Sports should not be the arena for us to wage conflict. You mentioned the Saudi Arabia and Yemen situation. It's been so frustrating to me over the last few years that this issue has gotten almost no coverage on the news, whereas what I see and read there is uh, is pretty horrific. Can you break down exactly what's happening in Yemen for us? I realize I'm asking you to simplify a pretty complicated situation, but uh, I think a lot of our listeners may be totally unfamiliar with it. They may have heard the term Yemen. They might 
might have turned, heard the term Houthi. Uh, they might know that Saudi Arabia is involved and that we're helping Saudi Arabia in this war. But I think most folks don't understand, A, what this war is about, and B, the level of civilian devastation that's taking place. Can you break it down for us in a Reader's Digest version? I'll try to do it as best as I can in this short period of time. Well, you had a situation in Yemen roughly seven years ago in which uh, internal conflicts there um, uh, led to a group called the Houthis to overthrow the existing government. The existing government then fled to Saudi Arabia and sought the help of Saudi Arabia against these rebels. Those rebels, incidentally, had been one of the main Uh, forces in Yemen that was fighting al-Qaeda in Yemen. And as a result, the United States viewed them as uh, not partners or allies, but pretty much on the same side in the fight that actually mattered to us, which was to fight the terrorists that had attacked the United States on 9-11, al-Qaeda. But as Saudis get involved, they uh, invade the country, start bombing it, they accused the Houthis of being close to Iran, which at the time was not that true. There were some connections. Uh, but over the course of the seven years has actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Houthis today are much closer to the Iranians than they were seven years ago. But the United States ends up supporting the Saudis, providing everything from intelligence to weapons to ammunition, political support, backing them, expressing all kinds of statements in in favor of that. And this was largely because the Obama administration who made this decision was worried that if it didn't provide this support to the Saudis, the Saudi opposition to the Iran nuclear deal would become even stiffer. And they wanted to signal the Saudis that, they, you know, just because of the Iran nuclear deal didn't mean that the United States was going to uh, turn away from the Saudis. It was a huge mistake that the Obama administration committed. They should never have supported the Saudis in this war. So the most fundamental reason is this fight had nothing to do with the United States. We should not be supporting war in faraway countries unless that conflict in some way, shape or form actually impact us. What ended up happening is that by supporting the Saudis, fighting the Houthis, we weakened the forces that were fighting Al-Qaeda In many cases, it turned out that the weapons that we were providing the Saudis and the Emiratis actually ended up in the hands of Al-Qaeda. We also saw that there was coordination between Al-Qaeda, the Emiratis, and the Saudis as they were fighting the Houthis. So we essentially put ourselves on the same side as Al-Qaeda in Yemen. That makes absolutely no sense. Once Trump came in, because he moved so close to Saudi Arabia, the support for the Saudis actually increased even further. Biden made the promise that he was going to end this war, that he was going to cut the support for the Saudis. It's been more than a year and a half that he's been in office. He is yet to do it. You mentioned three men who are very different, not only in terms of their ideology, but in terms of their style, Biden, Obama and Trump. You can go back further to both Presidents Bush and uh, Bill Clinton. And it seems like the one thing they all have in common is a reverence for Saudi Arabia, a willing to work with them as partners, uh, a willing to sell them weapons. 
what is it about our relationship with Saudi Arabia? It seems like no matter what comes out about their affiliations with groups like ISIS or Al Qaeda, the United States government and whoever's president has no problem dealing with them. And uh, whereas other other countries in the region uh, that are oil rich nations like Iran, uh, different administrations have no problem being adversarial with them. What does Saudi Arabia have on us that leads whoever's president to want to be in league with them? Is it all about trading the, um, you know, trading oil in dollars or is there something broader here that we don't know about? I would give you three reasons. The first reason is exactly what you mentioned oil and the belief that we need to have this alliance with the Saudis in order for them to keep oil prices stable over and over again. That has proven to, if not being false, it actually doesn't work. Just look at what happened with the Biden administration. They've been begging the Saudis for months to pump more oil, to push down oil prices, which will then push down gas prices here in the United States, which will push down inflation. The Saudis have said flat out no. Doesn't matter how much we support them in Yemen. It doesn't matter how much we support them against the Iranians. They're still saying no. In fact, at the first meeting between National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and the Saudi Crown Prince, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, Salman started yelling at Jake Sullivan when Jake Sullivan raised the issue of Jamal Khashoggi, the um, uh, Washington Post columnist that the Saudis beheaded and tortured. Uh, so if, if oil is that factor that people come back to, and I think it is the one that is oftentimes cited by governments themselves, it's a mystery as to how that is supposedly working, because now when we truly need it, we're not getting anything from the Saudis. The second reason is that the Saudis buy so much weapons from the United States uh, at $1.60 billion. And we saw that also during the time of the, of the Trump administration. In some ways, I think Trump was more honest. He said it straight up. He said, well, we're supporting them because they're buying our weapons. He didn't take points to try to finesse it. He just said it as it was. They're buying our weapons, and as a result, we support it. But there's also a deeper uh, geopolitical factor, particularly when you bring in the Iranians into the picture. And I think it's important to understand. A lot of people in the U.S. government believe in the idea that we have to dominate almost every corner of the world militarily. They believe in the idea of American military hegemony. And Saudi Arabia is a country that wants American military hegemony in the Persian Gulf. American military hegemony has provided the Saudis with security, a security umbrella. They feel protected. We're guaranteeing the survival of this dictatorial house of Saudi. So they want American uh, uh, military hegemony. So there's an alignment of interests between those in the U.S. government, regardless of which party, who believe that we need to dominate the Persian Gulf and many other places of the world militarily. We have a significant conflict with the Iranians, however, because the Iranians don't want to see American military hegemony in the Persian Gulf. They didn't want it during the time of the Shah, even though Iran and the U.S. were allies, and they certainly don't want it now under this new regime. So there, there is that deeper conflict uh, with the United States. However, if the United States actually pursues a strategy that serves U.S. interests, 
we would not be seeking Azerbaijan uh, domination of the Persian Gulf because it is, it is no longer that strategically significant to the United States. Uh, I'm way late here, and we talk with Trita Parsi from the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. So let me just end with this. I don't want to get into the Iran nuclear deal in this conversation because I realize there's a lot to get to there, and hopefully we can discuss it in our next conversation. But one of the key talking points that the critics of the uh, the Iranians always bring up is that they are the world's leading sponsor of of terrorism, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Is that an accurate uh, description of Iran? And where would Saudi Arabia rank in terms of being a state sponsor of terrorism? The Iranians certainly have been supporting terrorist organizations. There's no doubt about that. But it seems like our definition of terrorism has now changed so dramatically. It's not even clear what it means any longer. I mean, Sudan was on the state sponsor list of terrorism, but it managed to get up for a simple reason. It normalized relations with Israel. It didn't change any of its other policies, but it normalized relations with Israel and it got off the terrorist list. The Houthis were put on the terrorist list. It's not really clear to me why they were on that list in the first place, but the Trump administration put them on the list in December, right before they left office. And then when Biden came in, within a week, he took them off. I mean, the terrorists has kind of become a joke, to be completely frank, because it's no longer an actual measurement as to whether a country or an organization is really engaged in terrorism, unfortunately. But if it let's assume for a second that it should be there and that it's somewhat accurate. Well, if that is the case, Saudis would very much be at the very, very top of that list. Even folks from the Obama administration said it publicly. The seed money for Al-Qaeda terrorist network that attacked the United States on 9-11 came from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is uh, neck deep in support for terrorism. Uh, So again, it really raises the question, why are we being so deferential to a country that is so disregarding of our interest, yet so dependent on our support? What are we actually getting from the Saudis, mindful of the fact that we're offering them so much? Trita Parsi, we're going to have to end it there. There seems like there's never enough time whenever we chat. I look forward to our next conversation very much. Thank you so much, Frank. Talk Thank you. Soon. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, What will I be? Will I She said to me, Kay said, said all, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Kay said, I said, what will be, will be. Love this song. When I grew up, the great Doris Day. 
No vo- nobody had a voice like her. Nobody. Uh, also quite a beauty, if, uh, if you ask me. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Hey, did you smell what Alex Barnard was just eating out there in the in the hallway? Did you smell that? Now, it looked quite good. So I, I got close to it. It was like like a spice. It smelled anyway like a, like a spicy spaghetti dish with red sauce. Alex, you could come in here if you wanted to fetten the scent of your... Uh, of your stench. Did you smell that, Matt, or was I that just me? You didn't. Oh, see, you're neatly ensconced in that meta, in that in that <laughs> hermetically tight. sealed cube there. Um, what were you eating, Alex? I mean, it looked it looked good, and it looked like you were enjoying it. I mean, it looked like you were struggling to come up for air in between slurps of that <laughs> spaghetti. What was that? Um, I have my own recipe for spicy tomato sauce that I uh, I've been making it since. I think I was about oh. eleven. Well, that's maybe arrabbiata sauce. Yeah, arrabbiata pretty much. So, but I uh, I also melt uh, mozzarella cheese and um, Romano cheese into oh. it. Oh, and do you make the sauce yourself, or it's not from a can, right? Uh, no, it's not from a can. I uh, I usually it's actually sometimes it is from a jar, but this time around I tried making it from scratch, and it turned out pretty good. If it, I do say so, it, it looked it looked like you were enjoying it clearly. The the stench was a bit something. I mean, I smelled it all the way. I mean, at least 20, 30 feet away. I mean, it was really it's something. A, it's pretty powerful, I know. <laughs> I'll say. Jeez. All right, 800-848-WABC if you want to comment on uh, any of my discussion with Trita Parsi or anything else we've covered. Mario is in Jersey City. Hello, Mario. Frank, you're the best. Thank you. Uh, about the weed in Jersey City, the police officers, my nephew has been in the police uh, department for 16 years, mm. and he doesn't agree with the same thing, just like the mayor, uh, Stephen Fuller, a friend of mine. And he thinks maybe the CBD oil without the THC, which is the part that gets you high. Well, so when you say he doesn't he doesn't agree that police officers should be able to smoke it or or not, I, I'm not sure I understand. Right. Right. They shouldn't be able to smoke it because you can have a joint before you come to work. I mean, right now, if you test positive, you get fired from the department. Right. That's what that's and, what he reiterated yesterday. Yeah. Yes. And, and what Fulop, what the mayor, uh, Mayor Fulop did was ask the, the police director to, uh, I guess, make sure, look into it and that they don't smoke weed. And my nephew is like, you know, a guy can have a joint just before he comes into work and he's not 100 percent. Right. Well, but, but then if, again, this the the criteria that he reiterated yesterday is they can't even have it when they're off duty. Right. Well, I don't know about the off duty part. No, no, I'm it, telling it, you, that's that's what system, that's like, what he's like saying. You said, it, can stay, it can stay in your system for like two, three, four weeks. You know what I mean? I, I do. So indeed. Maybe this, the CBD oil without the part that gets you high, which I think is the THC part of it, that. Maybe it can help them because a lot of them have a lot of stress. Well, I know, yeah. Some callers were bringing that up yesterday, especially a lot of them are dealing with things like PTSD, and a lot of them might have injuries. I understand it. I just had a a police officer about two weeks ago that committed suicide. He was a a Marine for five years, and he was in the police force for six years. Wonderful guy. I mean, he could never, and you could not tell that something was wrong with him, but it took his own life. And he was 30, 34, 35 years old. 
I hate to hear that. I absolutely yeah, hate to hear that. Uh, that is a real shame. Mario, thanks for the call. Uh, please thank your son for, for his service. Appreciate it very much. Now, uh, I will tell you um, some good news that uh, I was very proud of. So yesterday, I get, I'm get i pulling up to my house around 6.20, 6.30 in the morning, maybe even a couple of minutes earlier than that. I made very good time yesterday. And as, you know, we have an alarm system, and I can see when my wife disarms the, uh, the disarms the alarm system. So I saw that she disarmed it at five minutes after six. I said, oh, she's up. That means our son, our four-and-a-half-month-old, is probably up. That means we're both in, well, all three of us are in for a rough day because that means I have to stay up with him instead of going to sleep for a few hours so that my wife can try and get a few hours of sleep. That means she's going to be ornery. She hasn't slept. That means he's going to be ornery because he's been up without any sleep. Anyway, I pull up to my house and I see my wife and my son looking at me out the window. Wait a minute. They don't look upset at all. She's holding our son. She's smiling. Wait a minute. Why is she awake and smiling at quarter after six in the morning instead of unhappily, you know, changing this child and giving him baby formula? So I'm afraid to say anything, but I'm waving. I'm trying to act like this is all natural. This is all perfectly normal. And I walk in and I get greeted with a big smile. Not at all what I was expecting. And my wife says... How long do you think your son slept last night? And I'm thinking, wiping my brow, because this is now a good news interaction. And I said, wow, wow. I know his personal record, his best, is seven hours. I said, did he do six hours? She said, more. I said, did he do seven hours? More. Did he do eight hours? More. I said, there's no way he did more than eight hours. He did. He slept 10 hours straight. Let the church say amen. A new record for this kid. And I said, what about you, honey? What did you sleep? Seven hours. A new record for her since Carmine's been born. So she sleeps seven hours. He sleeps 10 hours. This is great. She says, uh, you know, if you want... Just stay stay with him a little while while I grab a quick shower, and then you can go to sleep. I, I said, oh, my goodness. I better go out and buy one of those lottery tickets that I get so stressed out about buying because this is my lucky day. So uh, I guess now he's on a pattern where um, two out of every three days he's sleeping well. I mean, we've never seen anything like that. That was incredible. But who knows? Maybe that's uh, what we'll, we're in store for today as well. Fingers crossed. Those of you that sent prayers and well wishes his way for a good night's sleep, please keep those coming because I'm very superstitious. I'm going to try and get everything, do everything the exact same way today that I did yesterday. Hey, coming up next hour, what is Section 230 and why do people get so worked up about it? We'll explore it. Until then, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, uh, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One thousand eight hundred forty-nine. One thousand eight hundred forty-nine. Any idea what that number is? What if I said one thousand eight hundred forty-nine years? Any guesses? Well, 1,849 more years have been lost to wrongful convictions. There were 161 exonerations in 2021. That's according to the latest tally from the National Registry of Exonerations. Here's what's even more alarming. Misconduct by police, prosecutors, or other officials occurred in at least 102 of those cases. Three of last year's exonerees were once on death row. I want you to think about that. But for the intervention of some well-intentioned groups, three people could have been killed and sentenced to death. No, excuse me, they were sentenced to death. Three people could have been executed for crimes they didn't commit. Innocence organizations, like the Innocence Project, which does a great job, Innocence organizations and conviction integrity units were jointly responsible for seven of the 161 exonerations last year. And this all um, now on top of that, which I find pretty alarming, I also see this story where a city is not going to pay. $6 million that's been awarded to a man wrongfully imprisoned for decades. Listen to the story. Um, The qualified immunity laws, qualified immunity allows law enforcement officials to get away with all sorts of bad stuff, any manner of misdeeds. Now, the city of Durham, North Carolina, is proving that even if you overcome that obstacle and somehow get out of prison, because you've been wrongfully convicted, and you then win a lawsuit. It's not enough to get justice. A After a Durham detective fabricated evidence, Daryl Howard was wrongfully convicted of murder and imprisoned for more than two decades. Two decades. I want you to keep in mind what goes on in your life in 21 years. And then think about being locked away for a crime that you never committed. And then you finally get out. 
And then, in the case of Daryl Howard, a jury awarded him $6 million in this lawsuit. But the city of Durham, North Carolina, is refusing to pay it. Worse yet, the city is asking Daryl Howard to pay the legal fees of two city employees dismissed from the suit. This guy told the Raleigh News Observer, I proved my innocence. I went through every court. Every judge says what this was, even the governor. Now I have to fight again. See, back in 1995, Daryl Howard was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder and one count of arson. Uh, There's a lot of background on the case, which I'll spare you. I'll link to it on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash moranofan if you want to hear it. In 2016, these convictions were vacated. Keep in mind, he's not one of the 2021 exonerees that lost 1,849 years of their life to being wrongfully imprisoned. In 2016, these convictions were vacated and the local DA dismissed the charges. In April of 2021, the governor pardoned Daryl Howard. And in December... A federal jury found former Durham detective Daryl Dowdy had fabricated evidence and conducted an incomplete investigation. The jury awarded Howard $6 million in damage. The city spent more than $4 million fighting Howard's civil rights lawsuit. Think about that if you're a taxpayer in that community. Rather than pay this guy off with a sincere apology, hey, sorry for locking you up for 21 years, um... We're going to spend $4 million in taxpayer dollars to make sure you don't get a dime. So this lawsuit originally included the city and several employees as defendants, but ultimately it just included this detective, Daryl Dowdy. Now the city says it won't indemnify Dowdy, whom it employed for 36 years. That means the city won't pay the $6 million the jury awarded Howard. The twisted and bizarre reasoning here seems to be that the city will only pay out if its cops and other employees were acting in good faith, not maliciously. Since the officer that framed Daryl Howard was found to be acting in bad faith, the city won't pay. I want you to think of how sick and demented this is. This was a, a rotten cop that the city employed for 36 years that sent an innocent man to prison for more than two decades. And now the, a jury has awarded him $6 million and the city of Durham is telling him to go to hell. And what makes me so angry is the fact that there are 161 other people let out of prison last year that have similar stories. And I shudder in communities that don't have a conviction integrity unit or in communities or with inmates that don't have an innocence project. How many other innocent people are in prison right now? Missing time with their families, missing time with their loved ones, missing time going to their favorite restaurants, going to ball games, listening to their favorite radio shows, not having to fight over the TV in the common area. How many innocent people are in prison right now? And here, here's what, you know, Mohammed Aziz, 83 years old, 
convicted of the murder of Malcolm X in 1965. He was one of those individuals that was exonerated last year. Didn't do it. Muhammad Aziz, 83 years old, 83 years old. Where does he go to get the last 50 years of his life back? So um, this is really alarming. They, the, the, these crimes were never committed or wrongfully charged. The, as so, as the, they quoted, the um, National Registry of Exonerations says, there's no longer a debate about the prevalence of wrongful convictions. They're not unicorns. They happen frequently, and the registry's research has the data to show precisely the events that lead to exonerations. In terms of these findings um, related to the crimes that the exonerees were accused of, just under half of all exonerees were charged with homicides they didn't commit. Nine defendants were exonerated of sex crimes. 24 defendants were exonerated of other violent crimes. And 51 were exonerated for nonviolent offenses like uh, drug crimes or weapons possession. Three of the exonerees had been on death row. I can't get over that. A close examination of the cases reveals that official misconduct was a contributing factor in nearly 70% of cases. 47 exonerations last year were from convictions based at least in part on mistaken witness identifications, and 19 exonerations were based on proven false confections. 19 exonerations were based in whole or in part because of DNA evidence. 61 exonerations were because of the work of these conviction integrity units. However, in my view, there ought to be some penalty for a prosecutor or a cop that locks someone up away using false evidence. I don't know what penalty is appropriate. If you want to weigh in, you're welcome to 800-848-WABC. It's 800-848-9222. But it's got to be something done here. Got to be something done. 800-848-9222. There's people listening to me right now, I'm sure, in prison who were, I'm sure there's a lot of guilty people in prison, but a lot of people locked up wrongfully. Uh, if you want to comment, you can. Uh, also, I did want to mention this story. Uh, Elon Musk, who's been getting a great deal of attention who and who I'm going to discuss with Jeff Kossoff uh, regarding his attempted takeover of Twitter in a few minutes. He is also a space entrepreneur because of his role with SpaceX. And according to Elon Musk, the first settlers to arrive on Mars shouldn't expect a glamorous lifestyle or even safe conditions during their stay. Now, Elon Musk is probably the leading proponent of human exploration of Mars. Musk gave this warning while detailing efforts by his private firm SpaceX to develop a reusable starship capable of shuttling dozens of humans to Mars along with the equipment they'd need to survive and build a thriving colony. Now, I I, I tend to think Musk knows what he's talking about on this one. Um, I don't know, but he is basically saying that it's going to be very unpleasant conditions for the first human settlers on on Mars. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be cramped. It's going to be difficult to work. It's going to be uncomfortable. I think you probably, I want to cross Mars off my list of places to visit, aside from the fact that it takes forever to get there. So he says in this uh, TED conference talk that he gave, 
it's a it's very important to emphasize that Mars, especially in the beginning, will not be luxurious. It will be dangerous, cramped, difficult, hard work. The sales pitch for going to Mars is it's dangerous, it's cramped, you might not make it back, it's difficult, it's hard work, um, but it'll be glorious. So they've already begun testing over at SpaceX um, a prototype design for the 400-foot Starship rocket as well as a launch pad in Florida that's capable of accommodating this incredible, massive vehicle. So during the interview... Musk said that it was looking promising for SpaceX to attempt its first orbital launch of the shuttle in a few months. So I'm excited about this. I'm not excited to go, but I am excited about this. Lastly, uh, that I'll mention on the space front, the U.S. Space Force, which I think is going to go down in history, honestly, as one of President Trump's greatest accomplishments. The U.S. Space Force has confirmed that a meteor, an interstellar meteor, struck Earth in 2014. That's right. The U.S. Space Command has confirmed that this meteor struck our planet eight years ago. It was an interstellar object, meaning it came from a different solar system. And we're just able to confirm this now. Just ha- they just confirmed it yesterday. It con- hit the Earth in 2014, and uh, they released this memo that made this re- revelation And um, this meteor was first discovered by two Harvard researchers, and it struck near Papua New Guinea in 2014. I'm not sure the theory of this object being an interstellar object was first proposed by Harvard scientists, including one, Avi Loeb, who we've had on the show. It was also studied in 2019. This data has been submitted for publishing. I'm not sure what the smoking gun is here in terms of how they knew it was from another solar system, but they did. So I think that's pretty neat. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Specialist Lopez in the South Bronx. Hello, Specialist. Hey, sir. How you doing? It's a pleasure meeting you. Likewise. Thank bless you. Bless your soul. Bless yours. Yeah, thank you. You're most kind. And uh, happy Easter to all our brothers and sisters uh, in the East. And um, we're celebrating Easter. Um, Absolutely. I know uh, it's Orthodox Easter this coming weekend. I know a lot of my Greek friends are very excited about that. Oh, yeah. When does it start in in Greek, in Galicia? Well, I believe it's Sunday. Sunday. Um, This Sunday. Yeah, that's my understanding. Thank you, specialist. Walter is in Yonkers. Hello, Walter. Yes, uh, two comments about the uh, uh, the jail thing. Yes, the jail um, thing. Yes. I don't know if he. I don't know if he's still alive, but you should try to get on a, a an attorney named Barry Sheck. Yeah, I've been trying. He yes, on, he is still alive. He's the kind of the brains behind the Innocence Project. I know John Katzmatidis yeah, has yeah. had him on his show. He's a great guest and a brilliant man. Yeah, and uh, another one is uh, that prosecutor in that in this uh in Durham he was the same guy I believe one of the prosecutors who com- uh, tried to convict those uh Duke yeah the Duke uh, Lacrosse uh, no no you, that uh, same prosecutor's office not the same guy uh that other guy Nifong they ran out of town quickly yeah, yeah. uh not the same guy same office not the same guy which raises some interesting questions doesn't it Walter thank you and you know who's responsible for a lot of wrongful convictions Harry Connick senior 
the father of the singer. Very quickly here, let me say hello to Charlie in the Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Yeah, Frank, I'm really glad you brought this topic up, and I feel exactly the same way you do. These wrong convictions, and it's like in the case in Durham, you're talking about how they're not willing to pay the guy off and how they spent $4 million of taxpayer money to fight something that they knew they were wrong. My problem with that is not only the horrible injustice that happens, but because this happens so frequently in communities of color, this fuels and agitates and provides fuel to the fire of the defund the police. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. It's a great point. I wish I'd thought to mention that myself. You're right. Because the the AOC crowd can then say, well, look, why should we fund the police? They're throwing everybody in jail wrongfully anyway. You're exactly right, Charlie. That's a wonderful, wonderful point. And uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Thank you. Uh, Coming up, how important is anonymous speech? What is Section 230 and why does everybody hate it? We're going to get into it with an expert on this front straight ahead. WABC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. Well, we're now living in a pretty divided age. There's not many things that seem to unite people on the far right and people on the far left. One of the few things that seems to unite everybody is that almost everyone is unhappy with the big tech companies and the social media companies. You want to see Elizabeth Warren and Steve Bannon stop fighting, uh, put them at a table and ask, what do you think of the big tech companies? What do you think of social media? And they may have different reasons as to why they're so upset about uh, Facebook and Twitter and the other big tech companies, the other social media companies. But needless to say, their opinion would be negative. Well, um, a lot of the criticism of these big social media companies has focused on something called Section 230. A lot of people have called for its repeal. A lot of other people say it should be reformed. But what is it? Well, we are very fortunate this morning to have on with us the gentleman who knows Section 230 better than anybody and who's something of an expert when it comes to free speech in general, both the free speech of 200 years ago and of uh, 200 hours ago. Jeff Kossoff is an associate professor of cybersecurity law at the United States Naval Academy and an author whose latest book is The United States of Anonymous. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks so much for having me. So, Jeff, I'm going to talk to you about the United States of Anonymous and the idea of anonymous speech in a second. But I want to get you to explain, if I can, what exactly is Section 230? This is one of those things where I feel like the people who rail about it most almost understand it the least. What is it? What's its history? And what's the rationale behind it? 
So uh, the history of Section 230 actually starts, I think, within your uh, listenership area uh, in Nassau County, New York, on Long Island. Uh, There was a court case, and this is involving companies that now, when I talk to my students, they've never heard of, uh, called Prodigy and CompuServe, which were the first big ISPs and online services. And um, this was so. This was in 1995, and what the what happened was there was an allegedly defamatory post on Prodigy, um, and so Prodigy gets sued, and the judge says that Prodigy is just as liable as the person who posted it, uh, this def- allegedly defamatory comment, because Prodigy had moderated other comments. So the idea was that if Prodigy had done no moderation, it would have received First Amendment protection that would have really limited its liability. But because it actually engaged in moderation to make its services more family friendly, it faced more liability. So Section 230 was actually passed by Congress the next year in 1996 to address that problem. And what it basically says is that regardless of whether you moderate or don't moderate content, uh, if you're an online service, unless a, a narrow exception applies, you won't be uh, treated legally as the a publisher of user content. So basically what Section 230 says is you can sue the person who posted the content, but you can't sue the platform where they posted it. So um, if I'm on this radio station, for instance, and I say something crazy, I say something defamatory towards someone, I say something that's malicious, slanderous, untrue, uh, the radio station that I'm on can get sued. But if I do it on Twitter and make those same comments on Twitter or Facebook, Facebook or Twitter can't get sued. That's basically the the difference between how radio stations, newspapers are treated versus how social media companies are treated. Is that right? Well, sort of. So um, to the extent that a newspaper or uh, a radio station has a website or any other online service where people can post comments, they're covered just as much as Facebook and Twitter by Section 230. Um, And I mean, frankly, Section 230, when it comes down to what it frequently protects, it's actually in court opinions, it's actually more often smaller platforms that uh, get sued quite a bit often by businesses about things like reviews or employee complaints, things like that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the the idea being that the Internet is really a multilateral communications media, medium. So uh, the reason why a terrestrial broadcast uh, station would not get Section 230 protection is that you're not having contributors from all over the world. Um, anyone uh, just sort of go, come on and post content. Uh, but for a website, they, they do that. And the idea is one, one of the reasons for Section 230 is to encourage moderation while not while giving flexibility for platforms to build their business models around user generated content. 
So when a, a bigger social media company like Twitter or Facebook makes decisions about what content should be permitted, uh, obviously one of the more infamous examples, especially with our audience, was the uh, Twitter decision to restrict posting of that New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop and everything related to that right before the election. They're making a choice to be an editor, and this is one of the things that I know libertarians and conservatives have railed about, about the Section 230 uh, protection. Once they make that decision to moderate, as Prodigy did in the pre-Section 230 world, why then are they not subject to legal liability from people that want to take issue with things that individual tweeters or individual Facebookers could write? Yeah, so I should uh, I should probably just give the disclaimer that I'm only speaking on my own behalf and not on behalf yes, of the Naval Academy or DOD. Uh, of course. I, I mean, so Section 230 is really intended. So uh, the ability to moderate content, um, that's protected not only by Section 230, but by the First Amendment. So um, the, this is a fairly well-established uh, right for newspapers uh, that, you know, a newspaper can't be forced to publish uh, letters to the editor from opposing viewpoints, that sort of thing. Uh, The reason what Section 230 does is it it maintains that First Amendment ability to moderate content. But what, what it does is it removes the disincentive that was there for moderation because of that prodigy case in Long Island. So uh, the the idea is that you know yeah the platforms are are free to make make their decisions even if they're bad decisions and I'll, I and the the platforms have made a number of very bad decisions and uh, also they've made a number of decisions that might be more reasonable if they were more transparent about why they made the decisions uh, but the idea is that you know we we want to be able to give the the platforms the ability to say, you know, this is what we think is appropriate for our services. And the idea behind Section 230 is very market-based that, you know, if you don't like that a platform is moderating too much or too little, that you can go somewhere else. Uh, that, that's that been somewhat problematic uh, as the platforms have grown so much because, um, at least for the largest platforms, you often don't have many alternatives. Uh, that said, if you look at the growth of TikTok in the past year or two, uh, you'll see that uh, that there there always is room for market uh, changes. And I mean, one thing that I love to see, there was either Forbes or Fortune back around 2007 had a cover story about MySpace, basically saying, will anyone ever be able to catch up to MySpace? (laughs) And we, we, we know the answer to that. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, we did a segment yesterday about um, where the struggles that the streaming services are going through right now. And uh, some of us were wondering if Netflix is going to be the new new movie pass or the new MySpace, uh, which was one day once thought to be unbeatable and inevitable and now uh, is uh, sort of a distant memory. Uh, by the way, I want to mention if people are interested in learning more about the history of Section 230, uh, you wrote a, a terrific book about it, which I've read and which was very educational called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. It's available on Amazon or at uh, jeffkossef.com. That's K-O-S-F-E-F-F.com. So um, 
a lot of the calls for repeal of Section 230 have had to do with enhancing free speech. I am a very big free speech advocate. I've cautioned, and I think this is partially as a result of reading your book and other material that you've written, that my concern about repealing the Section 230 protections would be that it would actually lead these big tech companies to clamp down more strictly on what was permitted on social media. Is my concern about a Section 230 repeal a valid one? Absolutely. Uh, if I mean, it's basic legal and business sense that if there's a protection from liability for risk and you remove that protection and you increase the risk, then businesses will respond accordingly. They all have lawyers. Uh, I, I'm a lawyer. And I mean, if I see the risk increase, I say, OK, well, what is it really worth it to have user content? And one example is that Section 230 was amended for the first time in its history in 2018 to deal with uh, sex trafficking and prostitution. So basically, they carved out another exception to Section 230 to, because there were some really horrific cases where there were platforms that were being protected. Um, and what happened was, because of the way that the statute was written, was that uh, you saw platforms very quickly remove things, not not just things that were used to facilitate prostitution, but, for example, Craigslist eliminated its personals ad section altogether mm. because they said, you know, we, we can't handle the risk of all of this uncertainty. So I think that's a bit of a microcosm. Uh, be, I mean, that was one narrowly target, targeted exception. But if you get rid of Section 230 altogether, um, at, at that point, a platform is going to say, okay, well, if something might be defamatory, uh, are we going to take a risk in keeping it up when that means we might have to go to court and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on litigation defense? No, no. I mean, that. I, what, one example would be Yelp. So, I mean, Yelp's uh, process right now is that, you know, they'll remove reviews if they're threatening or have privacy violations, but they don't adjudicate factual disputes. And for someone like me who goes to Yelp, I, I go to Yelp for the negative reviews. I want to see if a business that I'm mm. thinking about patronizing has negative reviews. Um, without Section 230, a business could just go to Yelp and say, this is incorrect. You have to take it down. And if you don't take it down, we're going to sue you. And then Yelp is on notice. And Yelp has to make the decision about whether they're going to take it down immediately or leave it up and defend the case in court. And I, I mean, I don't want to speak for Yelp, but I don't think it would be a sustainable business model for them to defend defamation cases all the way to trial. Uh, so they would probably have to take down the the reviews, in which case Yelp would become filled much more with five-star reviews. And that's not terribly useful. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Jeff Kossoff. His new book is called The United States of Anonymous, and it deals with some of the important aspects of maintaining anonymity when it comes to speech. We're going to, we're going to talk about the book in a minute. Last question on Section 230, though, Jeff, is what are some alternatives other than a repeal? that you think might go a long ways towards furthering the cause of free speech and a vibrant dialogue on the internet rather than hinder free speech? Or is there nothing that can be done from a regulatory perspective at this point? 
Well, so we, we run into the if your goal is to increase speech online, and I'm going to say I speak with any member of Congress or staffer who wants to talk with me, and I'll say half of them share your perspective. But I will say the other half share a very different perspective, as you alluded to at the beginning of this uh, interview, where they believe the platforms allow too much harmful content and they want to see more moderation. So I think part of the problem is you don't have a consensus about Mm. what people want the Internet to look like. Um, And and then on top of that, how you get there, if if there is a consensus that we want to have more speech online, um, it's difficult to do that because, again, you get into the First Amendment issue where the platform, uh, unless the First Amendment gets radically reinterpreted by the courts, uh, the platforms can't be forced to carry the speech of other people when they, they, when they don't want to carry it. So I, I think there's not all that much you can do with Section 230. Uh, I, I mean, I think fostering new platforms and new business models uh, is a much better way because then you might not be as reliant on a few large companies. But I, I mean, I think that that that's a more constitutional way to deal with it than basically forcing a private company to carry certain speech. Talk to me about your book, The United States of Anonymous. You deal with the importance of anonymity when it comes to free speech. Why is anonymous speech so important? I know I think I speak for a lot of people that are even minor, minor public figures. And there's nothing more frustrating when, than when you see this anonymous Twitter troll or somebody with a made-up email address uh, totally taking something that you've done or said dramatically out of context and then trying to spread the word to everybody from the masses to your bosses about why you're such a horrible person and could be taken off the air. They get protected through this veil of anonymity. And uh, a lot of the folks that want to you know defend me or or the other hypothetical personalities that were that are that I'm referring to they end up using their name why is anonymity as frustrating as it might be so important when it comes to free speech so anonymity is really central to the entire history of our country going back to Thomas Paine who published common sense anonymously Uh, to when Hamilton, Madison, and Jay were writing the Federalist Papers to urge ratification of the Constitution, they didn't want their names associated with the Federalist Papers, so they they signed it as Publius. I mean, it's so fundamental to our history of being able to make an argument that is separated from your name, both for safety reasons, legal reasons, and also for the impact of disassociating your identity with your speech. So the courts have given strong but not absolute protection. So if you, in your example, if you were uh, defamed, if, if a court found sufficient evidence of defamation and, there, and you sued an anonymous poster and issued a subpoena, um, even if the person moved to quash anonymously, uh, you, if you had a strong enough case, the, the, the bar is very high. And the reason for that are these First Amendment values. Now, I mean, I'll say that uh, I've had the same things, especially since Section 230 has gotten into the spotlight. I've had some horrible things emailed and posted about me anonymously. But I'll also say, especially recently, I've had some really horrible things written about me 
and posted about me by people under their real names. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, and my experience, there, there are some sites that, that it's their prerogative to require real names. So Facebook, for example, uh, Nextdoor, and I'm on both of those. And I will say that um, those are not bastions of civility. Um, so so uh, there, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens under people's real names, but also there's a lot of anonymous speech on the Internet that frankly just could not happen if people use their real names. Things like uh, it, one of the most common situations is employees who are post who are whistleblowing on their employers or warning people, you know, don't work here because it's a terrible workplace. That's done anonymously because they, they have no other option but to do that. Uh, what are uh, is anonymity in the Internet age in danger at all? Is that why you felt the need to I- I reiterate the importance of anonymous speech? Yeah, it, it is in danger. And because because the First Amendment does protect, provide strong protections for anonymity. But uh, one thing I like to remind people is the First Amendment restricts government action. So it re- restricts Congress from passing a law requiring real names or using a court subpoena because that's a government action. Uh, but it doesn't restrict purely private uh Unmasking and more and more of our data is controlled by companies, by data brokers. They have facial recognition data. They have our geolocation data, and the United States is so abysmal at uh, regulating compared to really the rest of the world that uh, come people can freely buy this information. So it's harder. That's one area where it's harder to be anonymous. So we really do need an effective national privacy law. The other issue, and we've seen, we saw this come up uh, just yesterday with the Washington Post article about TikTok, is that oftentimes uh, people might assume that they're anonymous or pseudonymous, but uh, there's enough information about them that's out there that's publicly available that someone can, and there there are a lot of instances where this happened, that someone can uh, basically piece it together. And uh, that's what we saw with this uh, Taylor Lorenz story yesterday. And, but is there, uh, just to play devil's advocate here, is there a danger of instituting too many protections for anonymous speech? Because the, the I understand what you're saying, that there are some safeguards against uh, saying things that are defamatory against someone. But what about the era of doxing in which we're living in, where uh, people's personal information or uh, personal contributions or uh, anything that they may not want known to the public is released through an anonymous internet user. Don't those people, the people that are seeing their privacy violated, don't they deserve some protection as well? Well, they do. And I I think that uh, the one thing I urge in the book is for people to, when they're operating anonymously online, to um, be to be aware of what data is out there about them and how it could be connected to them so they can't be doxxed. Um, there's a debate going on right now about whether the Washington Post article constitutes doxing, and my view is that it really, frankly, depends on what definition of doxing you use. I think the it, it was legal. I mean, the Post had every right to publish it, but I'm, I was a journalist for seven years, and I think there's a much more interesting journalism ethics debate about that. 
but if but but ultimately it's really hard to stay fully anonymous. And so in your example, if there's an an anonymous person doxing people, then there's a chance that that anonymous person who's doxing people will eventually be unmasked as well. I see. Gotcha. No, well, that makes sense. Uh, talking with uh, Jeff Kossoff, his latest book is The United States of Anonymous. The idea I referred to uh, Twitter or Internet trolls earlier, the idea of trolling anonymously to sort of heckle anybody or make comments about some political entity or some media personality, that's not a new one, is it? No, no. In, in I start my book out uh, talking about the letters of Junius, which uh, were, were written to a London newspaper in the 1700s that basically, I mean, I, I consider Junius to be the OG troll. Uh, he <laughs> used all of these operational safeguards, like having other people copy his letters before he sent them to the newspaper and have have the drop-off locations changed. And to this day, there's no consensus as to who Junius was. There's a lot of suspicions, but um, he was incredibly clever. I mean, it's better than any trolling that you see on Twitter these days. But, I mean, it, it was one of the main factors in the prime minister stepping down. Um, the king, it infuriated King George III, so much so that the publisher of the newspaper stood trial for seditious libel. Um, so, no, this is – I mean, this is, we, we have – a very, very long history of trolling in various forms. Uh, the Internet perhaps makes it more pervasive and in your face, but it's, it definitely was not born of the Internet. While I have you, I can't avoid the temptation to ask you about what's happening with Elon Musk and Twitter. A lot of people, especially on the right side of the political spectrum, are looking at Elon Musk as sort of a free speech savior if he is able to be successful with his uh, takeover of Twitter. A lot of other folks and sort of more libertarian minded, they like a lot of what he and uh, and some other folks, including even Jack Dorsey, ironically enough, have had to say about the idea of decentralizing the internet is elon musk going to be the free speech or the decentralization savior that a lot of internet users think he will be uh if no uh if he ultimately were to own twitter i think that the issues are far more complex <laughs> that then uh at least based on his public statements how than they than they seem i mean I think he could make some changes that would increase uh, certain types of speech or allow certain users back on, and that would be one thing. But I, I think that um, one thing that people forget is that a platform like Twitter has thousands and thousands of tweets per second. It's not like you have a CEO sitting in an office uh, leisurely thinking about uh, how, whether to allow each tweet that gets flagged. I mean, this is, you have moderators, you have AI, you have all, and you're doing it at a, at a really fast pace. And you need to keep your platform usable because so much of what gets moderated is spam or it's abusive. Or, and to just say, we want free speech. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's good. I'm, I very much support free speech, but uh, the, there will always be a certain level of moderation just to make it a useful product. I mean, if you were to get rid of all moderation, uh, people would leave your service pretty darn quickly. So 
Um, I, I think he could make changes to it. And I, I think there are policies that definitely uh, would likely be changed. But um, but I also think that there is, there's going to need to continue to be moderation based on just consumer demand. A lot of folks on the leftward end of the political spectrum, they have looked towards antitrust as a way of reining in some of these excesses of big tech companies. Do you see that as a viable strategy at all? Uh, So I'm not an antitrust expert, so I'm probably not the best person to ask about that. I I think that the problem is that I, I don't know, based on the remedies available in antitrust, I'm not sure exactly... Uh, how that would fix the issue that you sure. just have certain platforms that people gravitate to. I mean, it's the economic theory of network effects. And I, I don't think you can very, I mean, people talk about, you know, do you break up Facebook and Instagram? I mean, I guess I don't see how that really addresses any of the issues though. No, no, that's fair. And, and finally, speaking of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the, the, a lot of them tend to rely upon these algorithms. Can you speak to, without saying whether that's good or bad, how those algorithms affect, uh, because especially we have a lot of older uh, radio listeners that may not check Twitter, Facebook, Instagram every day, and they may not understand how that algorithm affects what people see in their newsfeed and what sort of posts they see. Are you familiar with how these algorithms work, and can you enlighten us a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, it's basically the the way that uh, content is presented to you. And it's not, I, I mean, there's all, often a nefarious, immediately nefarious implication of algorithms, but just like content moderation, I mean, it, it, it's part of what makes the platform useful to people. Um, I, I mean, the alternative would be sort of the very early days of just entirely reverse chronological uh, social media, which uh, some people might prefer, but um, I mean, it's based on a variety of things, including often uh, your personal information that gets collected. Um, and, and so it'll target certain content to you. And there's been a lot of uh, legitimate criticism about, you know, is harmful content more likely to be targeted at people uh, based on the information that the platforms have? Uh, I think one one area of reform that I don't think is discussed enough gets back to privacy law. So you avoid a lot of the First Amendment issues by saying, okay, instead of saying that you can't uh, use algorithms because that's a First Amendment issue, you instead say, you know, you can't gather certain types of data and use it in certain ways. And I think that would really address some of the concerns about harmful content being targeted at people. It, it is funny, just anecdotally. I, I have a, a Facebook group for listeners of this show. And it's super small, especially in the grand scheme of things. It's only, I think, 2,600 people. But having to be the moderator of this small little Facebook group has given me a new appreciation for what Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and all these companies have to go through. Because when we first started it, I would just allow posts on everything. And then before you know it, people are uh, filling it up with spam. I 
said, okay, well, I guess I got to remove those. Then people are using it to make all sorts of political posts that have nothing to do with this radio show. I guess I should remove those. People are slamming the other hosts that I'm not talking about. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm having to institute an approval process, which I never wanted to do. So I, I think what, even if it's Elon Musk, he may find uh, the crown a bit heavier once he has to wear it and he has to make a lot of these content moderation decisions. But uh, thank you for what you've done on behalf of sticking up and giving a little historical perspective to anonymous speech. And thanks for helping us understand Section 230 a bit better, Jeff. Thanks so much. Uh, the book is called The United States of Anonymous goes all the way back to even before uh, Thomas Paine with the history of anonymous speech in America. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you can give me a call 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. In addition to reaching me by telephone at 800-848-WABC, you can uh, reach me via Facebook at facebook.com slash moranofan. I-, I have determined that in order to become, um, to have our audience continue to grow, I really need to become a social media star. And I, we're running a contest that whoever has the best suggestion on what I can do to become a social media star, email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And um, whoever has the best suggestion, we will, um, we will send you a copy of Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing the Killers. Uh, Bill is going to come on this show. I was talking to his folks yesterday to discuss the book and a wide variety of things. And um, we'll look forward to having him. Additionally, I am going to be hosting a small cocktail gathering Friday afternoon in Midtown Manhattan. Now, I'm not paying, but if you want to come, it's a cash bar. I'm not going to say where it is now because I don't need all sorts of crazy people showing up. But if you want to come... Email me, and I'll tell you where it is, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. You know, lastly, I really – I mentioned this to our guest yesterday, uh, Amy Shearer Title, because she's a a boxing fan. I am really looking forward to this fight on Saturday. I I know boxing is brutal, and and I know a lot of of people make the case that boxing should be banned – Look, I'm putting aside the ethical debate about boxing as a sport right now. I um, really enjoy watching a championship prize fight. So they have this this match in the U.K. on Saturday. 
Now, I'm supposed to have a couple of people over on Saturday for a ping pong tournament. I'm wondering, is there a way that I can watch this fight for free? Now, we went through this yesterday. I'm paying for five or six streaming services. There's got to be a way that I can watch this fight for free. Because I think it would be fun. The The card starts around 11 a.m. So it'll be people are going to arrive around 2. So I think it would be fun to have the boxing on in the background as people are waiting to play ping pong. So uh, if you know how I can watch this without paying $50, $60, let me know. Uh, email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Otherwise, I'll see if maybe a bunch of people want to chip in. Although I know what will happen. I'll just end up paying. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Oh, God, speak. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Frank. God. I forgive you, Eric. I forgive you. <laughs> um, my first question was about the wrongfully incarcerated guy. You said he was, they were make, they wanted to make him pay the lawyer's fees? Yes. Do you believe the- Um if, if he can't go to the Supreme Court, I'm going to go, you know legal better than me. Could he sue them for harassment and then get the jury through his lawyer maybe to award him what he has come into? Kind uh- of. So I, I don't know what possible? I don't know what the next step is, but you can bet yeah, there's yeah. going to be some further step so. in this process. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I would I would hope so. Uh, but I don't know. I'm actually yeah, going to reach yeah. out to this gentleman uh, or his lawyer That's to see if he wants yeah. to he, he wants to come on to talk yeah. about it because I, I think it's yeah. just atrocious. It is. It is. <laughs> that happens every day. You got to really wonder. Yeah, it uh-huh. does. 161 people last year that we know about. Yeah, yeah. How many actually had to walk the, the last mile, you know? <laughs> That's what's so frightening. Yeah, they go to, yeah you know. God almighty. Um, I had another question. I have a movie for you, but I had, um, with everything that's going on, <laughs> you were talking about, you know, when the prevailing media, all the corporate outlets are saying the same thing and pushing the, you know. I thought what Chris Cuomo said, remember WikiLeaks? I, yeah. I wonder if you have you ever tried to interview Julian Assange or, or thought about it? You or? know, I, I did. I did. Uh, was I know we know a lot of the same people, yeah. and especially uh-huh. he ended up doing an interview with Randy Credico on WBAI, and Randy mm-hmm. had a show that nobody was listening to. But um, oh. now um, Assange is in prison. It's a little harder. Uh, he is going to be no. extradited to the United States. So I thought uh, he was already. Yeah. Well, they did. They they approved it, and he's going to be in the United States. So maybe when he's on an American soil, I'll, I'll certainly yeah. try again, Eric. There was a young lady that uh, was seeing him, had was able to visit him. Maybe you could. She said she did a lot of interviews. Uh, so you know, that's you a great do, idea, yeah. actually. I, I've seen her on television um, <laughs> before. I'll reach out to her again. Yeah. I remember Chris Cuomo saying, oh, you're looking at, you're getting this through us. He said it pointedly, like, he was the arbiter of, the, you know, of truth. Uh, the movie, Terms of, have you seen Terms of Endearment? Love Terms of Endearment. Jack you, Nicholson. Did you, I see it? you, you have to see it. I, 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 I've minutes. seen it. I love it. I, absolutely. <laughs> Eric, I, I got to run. Thank you. Um, a wonderful film. Love, uh, love Terms of Endearment. Until next hour, we'll keep taking your calls at 800-848-9222. AC Report coming up. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone this is the other side of midnight i'm frank morano here's a uh, quick trivia question for you 
Do you know what age air traffic controllers can work until? Matt Blaze, any idea? Air traffic controllers, what age can they work till? I will take a guess at uh, 55. That's actually remarkably close. It is 56. 56. Air traffic controllers must retire at age 56. Commercial airline pilots, they are forced to retire at the age of 65. Here in New York State, I believe this is the same rule in New Jersey as well. Here in New York State, um, judges face a mandatory retirement age of 70. Now, it's a little complicated because if they're state Supreme Court justices, they can serve until 76 if they get three two-year extensions by the governor. It's a little bit of a convoluted process. So in New York, the retirement age for judges is either 70 or 76. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because there is one sector of the government that has no retirement age, no mandatory retirement age anyway. And we might be seeing the effects of this. Uh, I'm sure by now you've seen the reports that Senator Dianne Feinstein, California Democratic senator, who's up for re-election in 2024, she's 88 years old, and supporters of hers, not people in the other party, supporters of hers, are saying that she's exhibiting signs of dementia. She's 88 years old. Now, she's far from the only octogenarian in the United States Senate. You have a number of other senators who are seasoned citizens. Um, Let's see. I mean, the senator from... Idaho, Jim Risch, 77 years old. The senator from uh, Kentucky, the leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, 78 years old. Yeah, I realize those are technically septogenarians, not octogenarians. Bernie Sanders from Vermont, 79 years old. Uh, You have Patrick Leahy from Vermont, 80 years old. He's retiring this year, though. You have Jim Inhofe. 86 years old from Oklahoma. You have Richard Shelby from Alabama, 86 years old. And you have Chuck Grassley, who's 87 years old and is running for re-election this year to a six-year term. And you have Dianne Feinstein, who's currently the, the oldest member of the Senate. All of the people that I just listed in the U.S. Senate could not be air traffic controllers, They could not be commercial airline pilots. They could not be judges in New York or New York or New Jersey. Now that we're seeing reports, and I have no idea if this is true or not, that Dianne Feinstein is exhibiting signs of dementia. There is a minimum age to be to serve in the U.S. Senate. You have to be at least 30 years old to serve. You have to be 25 to serve in the House, 30 to serve in the U.S. Senate. My question for you is, and I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, you know of my fondness for senior citizens. I love senior citizens. My fa- If I had to pick one favorite group of people, it would be seniors. Love seniors. Those are my people. Do you think that there should be a maximum 
age to serve in public office? And if so, what should that age be? Uh, 800-848-WABC. Let's be honest. Our presidents have been a little on the old side lately. Trump and Biden, whoever won that election, would have been the oldest president in history. Biden is the oldest president in history. We have a 79-year-old in the White House who's telling people that he's running for re-election. Trump, if he runs again in 2024, he'll be 78. Hillary Clinton, she'll be in her 70s. Elizabeth Warren, she'll be in her 70s. So all of those ages would not allow you to be air traffic controllers, pilots, a number of other things, including judges in New York. Should there be a maximum age in the U.S. Senate or even for the presidency? There's a minimum age for the presidency. It's 35 years old. And I'll tell you where I am on this. My view is that a lot of this could be solved by term limits. It wouldn't all be solved by term limits, but I think a lot of it could be. And that's why I'm a, I've always, it's one of the many reasons I've always been a big supporter of term limits for almost everything. I'll emphasize the almost, lest anyone bring out my opposition to a New York City ballot question from five years ago. It's the last thing I'd want to have brought up with me. Uh, it's almost, okay? So that's number one. I've always felt that it's not the job of restrictions, be they term limits or age limits, to save the voters from ourselves. I've always felt that the voters should take into account whatever they want, including age, and then make a decision. But that sounds great in theory. But as a practical matter, as a practical matter, it doesn't work. Because when you have somebody like a Strom Thurmond, a Pat Leahy, a Dianne Feinstein, a Ted Kennedy, go down the list, uh, a whomever, you know, whatever, go down the list, that's such a legend, people don't want to run against them. So it's not as if the voters generally have a choice in choosing a young, vibrant challenger that reflects their belief, the mere presence of that longtime incumbent on the ballot usually means there won't be a competitive election. I know Feinstein did have a competitive primary a couple of years ago. That's true. But I'm talking about in the grand scheme of things for the most part. Here's why I have difficulty with a maximum age limit. And I want to hear your view. We have three lines open if you want to jump on board. 800-848-WABC. Here's why I have a, a problem with a maximum age limit. Because I know some people who are 75, 80, 85 years old that function better than some 65-year-olds and 60-year-olds. You know, uh, you, Tony LoBianco, who was on the show yesterday, sounds as sharp as a tack. I think Tony Lobianco is 85 or 86 years old. Did he sound 85 or 86 to you? He was quoting events from 50 years ago more easily than I could quote things that happened to me this morning. So, like, Tony Lobianco, I would have no issue with him. Meanwhile, there are some other people that I've known very well that they get to the point of being 75, 80. They're a lot less sharp. So... If it's not an age limit, is there some other way? Should there be a mental acuity test? Now, let's face it, and I don't want to make this political. Um, In the case of Biden, 
even if you love his politics or if you hate his politics, doesn't matter. I don't want to have a discussion about whether Biden is the greatest president of all time or the worst. In the case of Biden, you look at video of him from when he ran for president in 2008 or when he ran for vice president in 2012 or when he ran for president in 1988 or the Clarence Thomas hearings. You can disagree with the things that he's saying. The guy was sharp. The guy was sharp. He was on the ball. This is a different Joe Biden than the one that debated Paul Ryan and made Paul Ryan look ridiculous in 2012. It's a different guy. I'm not saying he's suffering from dementia. I'm saying he slowed down a great deal from 10 years ago. If we had a maximum age for the presidency, that would eliminate uh, Biden. Now, Trump, I think, is much sharper at 77 than than some other people would be at that age. But even in Trump's case, if you look at interviews that he did from 1988, 1984, 1980, Trump has slowed down a bit. His use of language is different. The way he responds to questions is different. And maybe that's just part of the natural aging process. I'm certainly not saying Trump's dealing with dementia. And look, when Trump was asked recently, I think by John Solomon, what's the one thing that could keep you from running in 2024? He said his health. That's what he said. So what do you think of this idea of a maximum age? Good idea, bad idea. And should it apply to the Supreme Court? Because let's face it, Thurgood Marshall, by the time his tenure on the Supreme Court was coming to an end, he had no idea what was going on. He had absolutely no idea what was going on. His clerks wrote every decision, and he basically voted with the liberal wing on everything. He wasn't asking any questions. He wasn't making any decisions based on the merits towards the end. This is well-documented, well-documented. I'm not attacking Thurgood Marshall. As a litigator, the guy was a legend. But the guy should have retired from the court years before he did. Now, I happen to think, in the case of the Supreme Court, as I've stated before, we shouldn't have life tenure. I think there should be a 15-year fixed term, one and done, that's it. But since we do have life tenure, should there be a maximum age? 800-848-9222. Tom is in Bergen Beach. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Um, great. My, I'm, my Frank, I'm sorry. My, uh, my problem is I, I'm in agreement with you on no maximum age limit. What I'd like to see more transparency with medical records, especially when it's obvious that something's wrong. Uh, if we can look at the fact that uh, taking consideration the president now, I mean, you see the the, uh, the gas that he's doing. Everything seems to be a little wacky with him. Uh, maybe we should have some more transparency with the presidency's medical records or maybe have a um, a, a doctor that has not his personal doctor. You know, we, we can, what do you call it? Um, Talk to him, you know, make sure that he's all right. Yeah, so so that? give me, give me, and I, I kind of like this idea because in the case of Biden, there was a Politico poll, and Politico is not known as a right-wing publication by any means. There was a Politico poll that showed 48% of Americans are concerned about Biden's mental fitness. Apparently, that includes some of Biden's own staffers. There was a report in Politico that his staffers either mute or turn off his live press conferences because they're so alarmed by the next malapropism or false claim. You remember just uh, the other day uh, um, on the on the on, on Russia, and basically said he can't, Putin can't be allowed to continue. He basically yeah. speaking off the cuff 
changed American policy in Russia. And then his staffers rushed to fix it. They said, oh, no, 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 no. He didn't actually mean that. So I, I think I think there's some validity to what you're saying. So how would it work? Maybe an independent medical board has to give That's anyone it. that wants to serve in public office a physical or something like that? I, I think that the independent board is perfect for that. And, and that's actually when, when something of this nature happens, like when he, he was flying in the beginning, you know, when he first came, oh, well, maybe not because he was always in the basement. We really don't know. But um, perhaps when it's obvious that something's going on, an independent panel might be uh, convened to, uh, to take a look at this. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, I, I Tom. It, it's not a bad suggestion. And look, this is not a partisan issue. Strom Thurmond retired at 100. He had no idea what was going on. He had no idea. He he had no idea what he was voting on. Do you see his face when Trent Lott made those controversial remarks at his birthday party? Strom Thurmond didn't know who Trent Lott was. Strom Thurmond's big concern was making sure there was some warm soup nearby. So uh, as long as it wasn't black black bean soup, he would have been fine. So um, there were even reports that Reagan, uh, towards the end of his second uh, second term, would fall asleep in cabinet meetings. Reagan was, by the time he left office, the oldest president we have. And there were some discussion, and Bill O'Reilly writes about this in his book, Killing Reagan, that he was occasionally so inattentive that some of his aides discussed invoking the 25th Amendment. Uh, And when it comes to the Supreme Court, it's not just Thurgood Marshall. William O. Douglas, uh, four years before a stroke, forced him to resign in 1975 he contemplated retirement because as he wrote to a friend listen to this my ideas are way out of line with current trends now to me that's where it gets to there should be no uh life tenure and as judge richard posner who's probably the most uh, highly regarded judge who's never served on the supreme court as he said um the judiciary is the nation's premier geriatric occupation. I mean, and you think about it, and this is, I just love the idea of term limits, but Congress is right up there with them. Among our, what did I just talk about with Jeff Kossoff? Regulating big tech. You know who's in charge of regulating big tech? A bunch of late 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds. So among our biggest public health crises today is big tech. There's reports that there, uh, as Maureen Callahan wrote in her uh, column in the New York Post last week, there's reports that they're deliberately corroding and addicting our youngsters and our most vulnerables. Do you really want an 88-year-old man or woman being the person that makes the decisions about how that should be addressed? What do you think? Is it time for a maximum age? 800-848-WABC, Joe's in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, I want to hit on three quick things. One is uh, Diane Feinstein. Now, you can't say it's because she's 88. But as of now, there's reports that she doesn't even know her staffers that she's been dealing with. She doesn't recognize them. You know, is that someone that can do a, a senator job? That's one. Number two, Joe Biden was reported to have had a facelift since 10 years ago, that's four hours of anesthesia. That can severely uh, damage your uh, memory, that level of anesthesia. And then the Pope is another question. This is a guy that's not a great guy, and he's also 85 years old. And that's like uh, an international figure. 
Well, yeah, again, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not going to comment on whether the Pope is a great, great guy or not. But the issue of age and the Pope is very real. Although Pope Benedict retired because supposedly he was sick. The guy's still kicking. Guy's still kicking. Healthiest sick person I know. Guy's been retired for uh, 10 years now. Uh, but that's a separate discussion. I have some theories about that. 800-848-9222. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Lou? No, no Lou. Josh is in Rockland County. Hello, Josh. Hello. Great topic. Thanks. Um, I believe there should be an age limit, even though there could be people from older that are smarter and whatever. But what other way are you going to stop it? If you do a like independent test, it's going to be corrupted as all government mm. agencies. They're going to put in whoever wants to, whoever they're going to say he failed, he didn't. And the reason people vote for these people is because people want a stability and they don't want like they want a quiet Washington. So they're like, hey, we know him. It's quiet. He's not going to do anything. He's not going to change anything. So they're like, eh, it's better like that. Well, I, look, and I don't want to take away. There are some people that function very well at, at 80, 85, 90. And sometimes that experience can be a benefit, but sometimes it's not. Um, my solution is term limits. But oh, I should have asked Josh what age limit he would have liked. If he's in support of an age limit, what should it be? Should it be 70? Should it be 75? Should it be 80? What should it be? That's where I think it becomes tricky. I think it does. Because there was a federal judge, Jack Weinstein, in Brooklyn, who I saw in court preside over a number of trials. He was sharp as a tack until his mid to late 90s. Honestly, he stayed on the bench until his late 90s. He was one of the oldest federal judges in the country. He was appointed, I think, by Lyndon Johnson. He just died. Just died. Not everybody can do that. Why you'd want to do that in your late 90s, I don't know. Although, I'll be honest, I still hope I'm doing this in my late 90s. Brian is in Denver, Colorado. Hello, Brian. Hello, Frank. Uh, Good to speak with you again. It's um, good to speak with uh, you. One, uh, one to uh, uh, bring up the subject you brought up earlier, because I happen to have had personal experience being incarcerated in North Carolina, about an hour from uh, Raleigh, Durham, where I was an elected official in Wilmington, where there's also a uh, very... Um, Less than uh, ethical uh, DA, who uh, will probably be governor uh, one day soon. And uh, although I committed no crime other than uh, complaining about the embezzlement of funds from the Head Start program, so, which uh, is the program. Brian, were you wrongfully convicted because of uh, misconduct by a prosecutor? Is that what you're saying? Well, technically, I guess I was never convicted oh. in that. The, the, the only time, the only time I actually uh, had an opportunity to face a jury of my peers, I was uh, found innocent in about oh. two minutes. Well, that I mean, because the, char- because you're, the charges were so egregious. Well, I mean, Brian, that under- that I mean, again, I'm sorry you had to go through that, but in my view, that shows the system working. If a jury finds you not guilty. And you're not guilty. That's the system working. My issue is with people that are in prison um, that are in prison wrongfully and in some cases have to spend, you know, decades there. 
And this is becoming all too common in my view. Yes, but let me uh, add this, which might uh, shade your view uh, somewhat. In the four years of my uh, term in office, I was stopped 80 times. Many of those times I wasn't even driving. I was just uh, using my car as an office. And each of those times I was stopped by at least five or six patrol cars, uh, lights flashing, given the breathalyzer, always blue zero zero. And uh, I was sent to the state North Carolina's maximum security prison. Well, Bernie Madoff, who actually committed crimes and hurt people and was convicted, was in but- Camp Fed. Yes, exactly. He was, he was there, and I was in Central State, also in Butner. He was in the minimum security camp. I was in the hall of the most uh, uh, secure and extreme prison in North Carolina, uh, in the hall, uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, oftentimes uh, going days with no food or water unless they wanted to drink out of the toilet. And this is without having been uh, convicted of any crime. No, that's not having committed any crime. And, uh, uh, yeah, no, that's, I'm so, I'm I'm sorry. I lost my, I lost my, I lost my family, my house, my career, my reputation, my future potential. Essentially, I lost everything. Well, I, I, I mean, again, I'm glad at least you weren't convicted and didn't get sentenced to prison. But um, that's a really rough situation, Brian. Brian, if you have access to email, um, email me some more information about your case, because I'd love to look into it a bit further. If you don't, I'm going uh, to put you. I actually wanted to thank you, because I don't know if you actually uh, did it or not. But back in the fall, I had asked if you uh, could connect me with any of your attorney friends and whether you. You did or, or didn't. Uh, I did speak uh, did with, you, did, uh, did, with one of your friends. Which uh, one? The initials, uh, which? Uh, Arthur. Oh, good. Okay. And, well, was he helpful? And, and, so, and, so, and so whether or not you, you talked to him or not. He yeah, I'm just, sure I did uh, if I said I would. Yeah. Um, oh, well, that's good. Um, I'm glad Arthur was helpful. And, and, He's good. Brian, I have to run. But if you want to email me, stay in I, touch. Stay in touch, okay? I will, and I'm staying in touch with Rudy as well. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Great. Thank you. All right. See, uh, Arthur always uh, willing to come through for people. All right. Now, we're going to go to Atlantic City, live to Atlantic City after a fashion in just a moment with Craig Stone, the host of one of my favorite Atlantic City podcasts. You know, I listen to this radio station most of the time, but occasionally I do also listen to some other podcasts. The only podcast that I think I've heard every episode of is the Do For A Win Atlantic City podcast. I absolutely love it. I, as soon as I see that it's it's subscribed, that it that it's uploaded, I immediately will find a way to listen to it. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to this show on the in its podcast form, I hope you do. Just search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes. Google Podcast, uh, Spotify, whatever, and hit the subscribe button. Even if you listen on the radio, it helps us out a lot. And if you can leave a nice comment or a five-star review, that will help other people discover the show as well. A friend of mine who you know is not usually up at this time, he said to me the other day, 
hey, on uh, Spotify, you came up as one of the podcasts that I should be listening to. I said, that's great. I hope you listened. He said, I did. And that only happens if more people subscribe and more people leave positive comments and a positive review. So search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano on the podcast app of your choice. We will go to Atlantic City. We will go straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is the AC Report. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. And they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Ah, yes, it is time for our weekly look at what's happening in Monopoly City, the city that has given so much joy to those of us that love to visit it and caused so many who have not visited in a while to scratch their heads about why people would want to keep going there. I'll tell you, I'm a big Atlantic City fan. You wouldn't know it by how infrequent my trips have become. But I'm always interested in what's happening there. And uh, my favorite podcast that deals with Atlantic City is the Do For A Win uh, podcast, the Do For A Win Atlantic City and Casino Biz podcast. As soon as I see there is a new episode uploaded, I run to my smartphone to play it and listen to it promptly. My only complaint about the podcast is that uh, it uh, takes so darn long between episodes, and uh, I wish it was on every day. Uh, The co-host of that podcast, Craig Stone, is kind enough to join us this morning. What's good, Craig? It's always good to talk about Atlantic City, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's great to talk to you. For people that have not heard your podcast, what is Do For A Win? Basically, just uh, every other week, although it's been three weeks now, <laughs> we talk about Atlantic City for half an hour, an hour, you know, the latest updates, what's going on in the casinos, what's opening, closing, new developments, all that stuff, and uh, try to fit it all into 30, 45 minutes. <laughs> That's it. I really like the rapport that you and um, Kyle Askin, your your uh, co-host, have with one another. How long have uh, you guys been been friends with one another and making these Atlantic City trips together? So we became friends in college. He was good friends with my roommate. <laughs> so we've known each other now for about 17 or 18 years. And we actually started going to Atlantic City when I moved from Maryland, which is where he's at, uh, up to New York City. And it was sort of like a between place. So so I started going, I think, in January of 2010. And I remember saying, uh, I'll probably go once and, and never really <laughs> want to go again and say, you know, that's enough for me. And I just immediately fell in love with it. 
And it became a thing where we were just always planning the next Atlantic City trip, always talking about different stuff going on in Atlantic City, um, you know, what we wanted to do next, what we thought was interesting. And uh, it became sort of something where we said we should start recording this and see where it goes. And and here we are now, I think, six years later or seven years later of having doing this. So it's been a lot of fun. Well, it is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun as a listener. Uh, I enjoyed the most recent episode that you guys uploaded, especially because it dealt with a uh, trip that you guys both made to Atlantic City. I can't remember the last time that both of you were in Atlantic City together, and so I kind of got the whole uh, trip review. But give me the um, give me the highlights of your most recent trip. How long had it been since you were there? What were some of the highlights of uh, of the trip, and what was different from your previous visits to Atlantic City? Because Atlantic City, the the only constant is that it's ever changing. Yeah, so our, our last trip was in mid March, I think, was when we went for the last trip report, um, or late March. I think before that it was December, um, like right before Christmas. So it had been a few months. Um, we stayed at opposite ends of the boardwalk. He was way up at Ocean, I was way down at Tropicana, um, and we just kind of did a lot of running around and going to non-casino stuff. I think one of the big highlights was as soon as we got into town, we just started checking places off the list of where we wanted to go. You know, we always have this big list of of restaurants and bars that we want to check out. So we started at Tropicana and just started walking and went up the boardwalk to a pizza place that we had heard was good that turned out to not be good. Yeah, that was from the now that was from the Amy Rosenberg list of the best boardwalk pizza, right? Yeah, and and we had the number three place on our list the last trip, and, and she did not steer us wrong on that one. But I don't know if it was just an off day or what. And so number one you, place you went to the number one place, and it was just mediocre. It was worse than mediocre. Well, it was really you know, bad. everybody that lives in Atlantic City that I've spoken to from all walks of life, they say you really can't eat, get good pizza on the boardwalk. They say there's only three or four spots in Atlantic City that you can get good Atlantic City and none of them are good Atlantic City pizza and none of them are on the boardwalk. So I think even the best boardwalk pizza is probably pretty lousy. Yeah, I mean, I'll say the Steel Pier pizza that's just out of like a big trailer in front of the Steel Pier was shockingly good. Um, Like it would it would hold up with a decent New York City slice. Um, But yeah, most of the boardwalk pizza we've had has been subpar <laughs> all right so okay so you, by the way don't you think that's a shame that so many people that do visit atlantic city regularly they don't get outside of the casinos to explore the boardwalk and explore some of the other attractions that atlantic city has to offer yeah and we were guilty of that for a long time even after we started the podcast we would kind of go and and just stay in one or two casinos we are you know, mostly hang out in the casino we were staying at and, and hop a little bit from casino to casino. I mean, I think we thought that we were getting around the town by casino hopping more than most people do, but we weren't really going to places out on the boardwalk or especially out off the boardwalk. Um, and, and now we've really made that a focus and mm. I think it's made our trips a lot more fun. We're getting a lot more fl- of the flavor of Atlantic City. And it also helps that there's been a lot of development, you know, the orange loop adds a lot of places that are really worth going to off the boardwalk. So I think we're seeing that a lot of people are are making the trips off the boardwalk to go to, you know, things like Rhythm and Spirits and and Bure and places like that on the Orange Loop. And and hopefully that's also 
directing people to some of the older kind of hidden gems, like stuff we hit on the last trip, like Atlantic City Bar and Grill and um, places like that. I love the Atlantic City Bar and Grill. I find the food there, especially the seafood, absolutely phenomenal. And it's uh, one of the few great restaurants in Atlantic City that you can actually enjoy at a decent price. It's, they don't kill you in terms of pricing. Uh, by the way, in terms of uh, the Orange Loop, I want to wish a happy birthday to Mark Colazzo, the proprietor of Rhythm and Spirits and uh, uh, so many of those uh, those those. Tennessee, the Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall, but a lot of the Tennessee Avenue businesses, including Cuzzy's, a new pizza spot that I haven't tried yet, but I'm told is pretty good. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Craig Stone. You can hear he and his partner Kyle Askin on the Do For A Win Atlantic City and Casino Biz uh, podcast. Craig, what's the best way for people to to find the podcast, by the way? Just doforawin.com, or if you're in any podcast service, just search for Atlantic City Podcast, and we should be the first thing that comes up, I think. I haven't checked in a while, but I'm assuming that's still the case. So recently, uh, we saw the 2021 profit data um, for the Atlantic City casinos. What uh, what does it show, and how does it stack up to the pre-pandemic Atlantic City? Yeah, it was really positive news. Uh, it was $766.8 million in 2021 of, of profit. Um, this is like the gross profit, the earnings before interest taxes. I don't know what all that, <laughs> the, um, the full term is, but, uh, you know, the, the casinos only made $117 million in 2020 because of the pandemic. They were closed for all of the summer, which didn't help or not all the summer, but all the spring and into the summer. So comparing to 2019, though, it was up um, over $100 million, so or, you know, almost $200 million. So really good numbers. There's like 29% increase. Um, so mostly positive stuff. And so it was really good to see that and really good to see that the city's doing really well, especially because you know there are two new casinos. And so the city needs to be making a lot more money. <laughs> the, the profit needs to get expanded as there's this expansion of more casino properties. And that was a big concern before the two, those two casinos opened, Hard Rock and Ocean, was, you know, will they really grow the the amount of money coming into this casino? And is there enough money to go around for nine casinos? And it seems like we're seeing that, that there is. Now, I know that you finish each episode of the podcast by doing a review of the most recent edition of Boardwalk Empire. Now, I thought I watched Boardwalk Empire way too late. I watched it, I think, five or six years after it was off the air. You guys are putting me to shame uh, because it, you are making your way slowly through this series. How are you? Um, how are you liking the series? And if you do like it, is that frustrating for you to wait a couple of weeks in between episode viewings? Yeah, it's, once once every two weeks is too slow to watch a show. I mean, everybody you know binge binges shows now, and we're doing the opposite of binging, <laughs> whatever word that would be. Uh, we just recorded um, yesterday, and so we watched the season four finale, which I thought was amazing. I thought it was one of the best. I think the second half of season four is like one of the best runs in the show. Uh, and so, you know, bounced back from season three, which I didn't think was that good, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm finding the show really, really good again. And it is weird that we're so late to it considering that we're, you know, big Atlantic city fans and it's a show about Atlantic city and we just didn't get to it until, you know, however, however many years after the fact, but, uh, yeah, it's really enjoyable to, to go through it. Although it's kind of funny that we always joke that we, 
we don't watch it until the night before we record and it's sort of like having homework and procrastinating right, right. waiting to the last minute. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I, I get it. I, I feel that way with, uh, with some authors or filmmakers that I, uh, that I have to, uh, interview. And, uh, a lot of times you feel like you're cramming for an exam. Um, uh, but if people haven't seen Boardwalk Empire, irrespective of their fondness for Atlantic City, you think that's a show that still holds up because people's tastes do change as television shows change and everything. Yeah, I mean, I think the the standard of of good TV has changed a ton. So I, you know, everybody for right. a long time was saying like The Wire's the greatest show of all time and stuff. And I think that I haven't seen it, but I I know that Kyle has said that it, it, he doesn't think that's really true anymore because the, there's been so much good TV since then. I think for other than season three, which I think is legitimately bad, I, I think that Boardwalk Empire still really really holds up. You know, the writing is excellent. Um, you know, the season four finale, I thought was just so dramatic and in, in such surprising ways that, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, it just holds up. You know, that doesn't go bad over time or anything. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Talking with a do for a win Atlantic City and Casino Biz podcast. How is it doing an Atlantic City podcast from, in one case, Maryland and one case, North Jersey? I mean, is it difficult going to Atlantic City as infrequently as you do to do a podcast focused on that town? Uh, we haven't find it, found it all that difficult because we always sort of talked about it anyway. So we were always following the news very closely. I think it was harder when we had a long stretch where, you know, Kyle and I both have youngish kids. So we had very young kids early on in the podcast. We both had a second kid while we were podcasting. <laughs> and so th those stretches, I think you're going through this now also, <laughs> those stretches where you don't go very often it gets a lot harder like when, when you're really only going, you know, once every six months. Or yeah. Less. No, believe me. I, I feel, uh, you know, I, I'm jonesing for, for an Atlantic City trip. Believe me. Um, if you had to pick and a lot of people listen to these podcast, these uh, segments that we do, and then they get inspired to plan a trip to Atlantic City, even if it's a place that they haven't been to your favorite bar or restaurant outside of a casino. And the same question, your favorite bar or restaurant within the confines of a casino hotel? I think my favorite uh, restaurant inside the casinos right now is Dockerty's at Resorts. Um, I actually heard from a listener that they've been closing early lately, although it's midweek. So hopefully it's just a midweek thing and not a sign that they're struggling. But uh, it's a newish restaurant that's owned by the same people as uh, Doc's Oyster House, which is very famous Um long tenured restaurant. So I won't pick Doc's Oyster House as my favorite non-casino non, uh, restaurant, even though it's very, very good. Uh, you know, I'm a big lover of the Irish pub, mm. but I know Kyle will get mad at me if I say the Irish pub because it's a, it's very polarizing <laughs> and he is really not a fan. Yeah. Well, um, he doesn't like that it's dark. Is that the deal? It's very like low ceilings, so much deck there's just no not an empty space on the wall in there there's so much stuff everywhere and yeah just dark low ceilings um like you come out we came out after last trip we went and came out and it was light out and it was just show, so shocking to come outside yeah <laughs> of, i've been there I've been, that's there. what's so great about it i feel like when i'm visiting there and uh, a shout out to kathy burke the proprietor of uh, that establishment who last time we were there i think 
gave us some uh, some free appetizers, which was delightful, is you almost feel like you're hiding away from society. And especially if there's a day where you've had bad gambling losses, that's kind of what you want to do. You want to you know, you want to hide away and not let the daylight find you. At least that's my view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but then, yeah, like everything on Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall, I mean, everything on Tennessee Avenue, like Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall, I really like, um, Rhythm and Spirits, I, I think is excellent. I mean, I, just all that stuff is doing so much for the city in my mind. So, um, I, I think I would, rather than picking one, I would just say like, go out to the Tennessee Avenue and do sort of the old and the new, like pick a Lily Irish pub, Tennessee Avenue Beer Hall, all those things and, and get that experience. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very sound advice. What uh, I mean, it's becoming increasingly likely that they're going to do away with uh, smoking in these casinos. Uh, I am, I enjoy an occasional cigar. I'm uh, disappointed that I won't be able to luxuriate in that fashion any further. But what impact do you think that's going to have on the Atlantic City experience? Even after they banned smoking statewide in New Jersey, the one exception was Atlantic City casinos. Is that going to change the Atlantic City experience significantly in your view? Uh, not for me. Uh, and I think, I think right now th- there's no start on 75% of the casino floor, um, in Atlantic city casinos. And for me, for the most part, that does a really good job yeah. of, of limiting your exposure, um, as a patron. So I know that the, the driving force behind this is the dealers that don't really have that choice to just walk to a non-smoking section of the casino. But, but I've always kind of appreciated that, that, you know, you can go up to, to your hotel after a day in the casino and your clothes don't just totally smell like smoke. Um, but I also understand that for a lot of people, it's, you know, like having a cigar, having a cigarette is a big part of the experience. I, I don't think financially it's going to be great for the city. If that happens, I'm assuming the casinos are going to fight it if it really gets pushed hard. So we'll see how, how far it actually gets, but you know, certainly the, the wind is blowing in that direction, I guess right now. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how big a financial impact mm-hmm. it'll have, but I think I think for most people, um, you know, it's it, it, we see in the Facebook, like our Facebook group, the Everything AC Casinos Facebook group, which is the big Atlantic City Facebook group. Um, it, it's kind of polarizing, and, and I'm I'm actually always surprised at how many people are in favor of it and say like this would be great. It's it's it, just as many, if not more, than the people who are saying, "Oh man, I really enjoy having a cigarette and." Or having a cigar at the casino. So it's interesting. Uh, that it is. Uh, talking with Craig Stone, you could listen at the Do For A Win uh, podcast. Just search Do For A Win on any uh, podcast app. It comes right up. In terms of uh, some of the exciting changes that are coming to Atlantic City, Bally's looks like they're doing some really interesting things. Just a few years ago, Bally's was a total dump. Now they're adding all sorts of new dining options. They're renovating rooms. Uh, They're launching a a beer garden in the area where Harry's Oyster Bar used to be. Would you say that's one of the more exciting things happening, at least on the boardwalk casinos at this point? Yeah, I mean, a a couple of maligned properties in my mind are are doing some of the biggest stuff, I think, Bally's with the yard beer garden that that they're currently working on. Uh, We saw them doing construction on it when we were in town. I think that's going to be really great, especially in the nice spring, summer, fall months to to be able to go to that beer garden. The location is dead center on the boardwalk. It's it's a great space, the, the courtyard space at the old Harry's oyster bar was always a great space. And so to like utilize it more fully, I think is a really good idea 
for Bally's. Um, the rooms at Bally's in that big pink Bally's tower are, are big rooms. And so they're, they're in dire need of renovation, except for the ones that were updated to, to be Jubilee rooms, which I don't know how many, like, I don't know the percentage of the rooms that were updated, but, uh, renovating those, I think is going to make them actually some of, you know, it'll bring them up to par with, with some of the other, um, nicer properties, maybe like hard rock and stuff like that. So that, so that'll be big for them. Um, and you know, they're, they're lagging behind everyone else in terms of gambling revenue. Uh, I think they actually in March nicked ahead of, uh, resorts and, and golden nugget. So hopefully this will start that trend a little more. Um, and you know, they, they, they're an interesting one because they, Bally's always had Wild Wild West. Wild Wild West is now part of Caesars because Bally's used to be part of Caesars. They lost their whole players network because they're not part of Caesars. So they have an uphill climb, but it seems like they're doing a lot of stuff to to move forward. It, it seems a virtual certainty at this point that there are going to be three New York City area casinos that uh, come to fruition within the next few years. What um, impact do you see that having on the Atlantic City gambling market? It's hard to see it being positive, obviously. I know that a lot of people (laughs) are very doom and gloom about it. I mean, I think if they open a big Borgata-style place, you know, right outside of New York City or in New York City where it's it's easy access for everybody who normally commutes into the city anyway – uh, especially from North Jersey where, you know, like, like I am <laughs> where I would normally come to Atlantic city. And then, then I would have this casino option really close. I think that that would hurt a lot. I think if it goes the direction that I'm seeing being rumored, which is basically just upgrading like resorts world in Queens and empire city in, in Yonkers and that kind of stuff. I sort of wonder if those places are already in their position in people's minds and that that's not actually going to affect Atlantic city as much like people who are going to Atlantic city will keep going to Atlantic city. That's probably being overly optimistic, but uh, you know, if I was running it in New York, that's not the route I would go. I would really go for the kill on Atlantic city and put like a mega resort somewhere either in, uh, in Manhattan or, or very, very close to Manhattan. I think, People underestimate how much of a pain it is to get out by JFK to go to to Resorts World. I've never been because it's very it's a it's a distance, very short pl- amount of uh, miles covered to get to Queens, but to actually get there on public transit is extremely difficult uh, from New Jersey. So you know, it's just if I'm going to do that, I might as well just go to Atlantic City. So. Um, but I, yeah, we'll see where they go with that. You know, one of the other things I really enjoy about your podcast is that you guys go through what's happening now. You go through the news. You have a little fun talking about uh, you, the, whatever the next Atlantic City trip is or whatever the last one was. You do a Boardwalk Empire review at, towards the end of the episode. But you also start um, with a Atlantic City this year in history – how do you select which year in Atlantic City history you're going to profile? And where do you get that great Atlantic City historical content? Yeah, so I don't know how we came up with the idea. I think it sort of started with a, a random number. So we would do, I think it was around episode 75 or something. We started talking about like, oh, well, it's episode 75. So in 1975, this happened. And and then, you know, it's a little more confusing now that we're on 171 to be doing 1871 and 1971, because at some point we also, uh, you know, Atlantic city was founded in the mid 1800s, mid to late 1800s. So we started with 18, the 1800 and the 1900. Um, 
so we're going to get to a point soon where we're doing years that we've already done. Uh, Luckily, those years, there's a lot going on in Atlantic City, like in the 70s when gambling uh, legislation was was introduced and, and legalized. But uh, I just search it. I just Google it and uh, find things, you know, sometimes like these random 1871, 1870, you got to go through pages and pages to find something totally random that happened at the time. Um but also the Atlantic City Free Public Library, I searched the date there. The, there's some place called the AtlanticCityExperience.com <laughs> that I search there and, and just hope, hopefully come up with something decent. And sometimes it's something really important that's happened, like, you know, the uh, gambling legislation is pitched for the first time. Sometimes it's something totally random, like a menu that we found from an old hotel. <laughs> and that's the only thing to talk about. But uh, we always have fun with it. And it's always really interesting. Yeah, to, no, that's for sure. Something. Definitely. Uh, people should check it out if they're fans of Atlantic City. Does uh, Kyle ever get upset that he doesn't come on this show? Which he's welcome to, by the way. I don't know. He he wakes up earlier than I do, so maybe it would be uh, not as as much of a change for him since I think he gets up very early anyway. But uh, no, he's he's normally very happy with me being the sort of the face uh, of the Do for a Win brand. Yeah, I don't know if I would say the face, but yeah, like doing the sort of outreach kind of stuff, the social side right. of it. Do for a Win <laughs> ambassador to the to the world. When's your next yeah. Atlantic City trip? We are thinking sometime early June, first week in June, and I think we actually for once have more than just us two going and, and some of our friends that we haven't seen in a while may, may meet up Wonderful. with us. So. I may try and crash that trip and, uh, and see you in person. We'll do the Tennessee Avenue uh, Beer Hall Bar Crawl together. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Craig, it's always a treat talking with you. I will speak with you soon. Uh, our best to Kyle and, and everybody. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Thank you. My pleasure. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, uh, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. I'm that type of guy. I certainly am. If you ever want to know what music we play on this show, join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, we post whatever it is that we play on the show on that Facebook page. Well, you know, I knew it was too good to be true. So I just got a message from my wife. Now, if you're tuning in late, my son slept for 10 hours yesterday. Tonight, not. Uh, I got a message 47 minutes ago from her. She said, the child isn't sleeping well. Are you home normal time? All right. That means we're all in for a rough morning. Uh, we will see. We will see how that goes. But uh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. Um. It is uh, tomorrow's Friday, by the way, tomorrow, as per the deal that I made with you yesterday, we are going to do a two hour edition of Ask Frank Anything. So from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m., that's right, 
you can ask me questions about whatever you have questions about. You have questions about Atlantic City. You have questions about uh, child rearing. or I, I don't know how good my answers will be, but you now have a full day to get your questions in tomorrow. So I'm gonna, I should be able to get to a lot more questions. There's always eight or nine people hanging on that we don't get to. So come to, come armed with good questions, and uh, maybe that'll give me time to give expansive answers as well. We will give away two prizes. We're giving away shirts this week to whoever comes up with the best questions. So that's that's big. It's big. So you have a whole day to think about it. Come back tomorrow, 1 a.m., armed with uh, with questions. I um, we're, we're finalizing all the arrangements for our son's uh, baptism, and I think we're all set in terms of the church, in terms of the restaurant we're going to have dinner afterwards and everything. And my wife is always pressuring me to follow up with people on the RSVPs, right? Because there's always some people that don't RSVP. And then it really does kind of screw up everything. We we were trying to do tables yesterday, and I think it's a small crowd. It's not like a wedding. So um, it was a lot easier. But it's always we were saying, OK, that person can come even if they don't RSVP, because, you know, there's going to be a couple of people that no show. And then we were trying to guess who the no shows would be. We both came up with the same people <laughs> that would be no shows. So it's uh, it's very interesting how people seem to get a reputation when they don't show up uh, somewhere. You know, it's funny. Our boss, uh, John Katsimatidis, was kind enough to invite all the air talent to the Inner Circle dinner. And I love the Inner Circle dinner. I've gone before. I usually can't afford to go to the main dinner, so I go to the night before. It's a show basically put on by all the reporters. Dominic Carter usually performs. He's not performing this year, but a lot of other people do. And it's the night before Carmine's christening, so I can't go because we have like a, a rehearsal at the church that uh, that we're going to. But that was really nice. So I know John and Margot both listen. Big thank you to both of them for inviting us to that. I'm sorry that I can't be there, uh, but uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll get invited again next year. So uh, that's going to be a fun show. This is the 100th anniversary, as I said. That's where you see the mayor acting silly, the reporters acting silly. It's always a fun time. Hey, coming up next... How young is too young? We'll get into it. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. Frank Marano, 'm I'm not tired yet hopefully you're not uh, I'll tell you I'm often asked the question and I, I've asked this question to other broadcasters myself and even though I always preface whenever I ask the question I always say I realize this question is almost impossible to answer and I know it's so unfair to ask but a question that I get maybe once a week and it, it causes me to think about it all the time 
is who is your favorite guest? Who is your favorite person to interview? And really, there's no way to answer that because I have favorites for different things. Um, uh, you know, on on serious issues related to foreign policy and political issues, I love talking to Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader. On issues related to um, crime, organized crime specifically, I loved um, the series of interviews that I did with uh, John Gotti Jr. On uh, issues related to the law, uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with Oscar Goodman, Arthur Idala, Ron Kuby, Jeffrey Lickman, Alan Dershowitz. On issues related to, um, you know, I mean, you can go down the list. Bob Barker, that was a real treat to be able to talk with him. Jesse Ventura, he's great on so many different areas. Jesse Ventura is the kind of guy, you throw a political question at him, he answers it. You throw a conspiracy question at him, he answers that. Then you throw a question at him related to uh, pro wrestling, he answers that. Football, he answers that. You can throw any question at him, and he's prepared. It's great. And even when he's not prepared, he still sounds prepared. He's great. Um, So he's another one of my favorites. And on the subject of parenting, though, it's not even close. My absolute favorite guest that I've ever spoken to, and she's been a guest many times. She doesn't like these hours, so sometimes she tries to pre-tape or it screws up her whole day, which I get. Because whenever I have to do something at noon, it screws up my whole day. My absolute favorite guest on the subject of parenting is Lenore Skenazy. Lenore Skenazy, if you're not familiar with her, she was a journalist, and she's now the founder of a group called Let Grow. And they used to be called Free Range Parenting or whatever, Free Range Kids. Now uh, their mission is really expanding, and more and more parents are doing this. And basically her whole philosophy She made headlines when she let her, I think she had a nine-year-old, she let her nine-year-old take the subway in Manhattan by himself. And uh, there were publications that called her the worst mom in America. But she used it as an opportunity to found this movement. And so they have a great blog on their website. Their website, by the way, is letgrow.org. And long before my wife and I had had a child, long before we were married, we both agreed with this parenting philosophy. It's funny. I used to I, – I do still listen to Howard Stern. And Howard Stern was giving advice to someone that was in a serious relationship about what you should look for in a future husband or wife. And he said to this person – and I never forgot this. He said when you find – when you're thinking about marrying someone – Obviously, you know, attraction's important uh, because you're going to be with this person for the rest of your life. But um, you also have to ask yourself the question, do the two of you want the same things in life? And if you're going to have children, do you have a similar philosophy when it comes to parenting? Because you could be as in love as possible, but if you don't have a similar parenting philosophy, you don't want the same things in life, then... You you really it's very difficult to have a marriage endure that. And uh, I kept that in mind when Rachel volunteered that she liked a lot of the things that Lenore Skenazy was saying on the radio with me and on other shows as well. So I've become a regular reader to the blog over at letgrow.org. And I get a lot of story ideas from there. They profile a lot of a lot of crazy 
laws that arrest parents for leaving their child alone for eight seconds or something. And I was really struck by an article, a blog post, I guess, that she wrote on there this week. Evidently, there's this new Netflix series. It's called Old Enough. Have you heard it, heard it, heard about it, or have you seen it? I haven't, but I'm going to check it out. And this new Netflix series, it's called Old Enough, shows children ages 5, 4, and 3, even 2, 2 years old, running errands without an adult. So the Today Show did a segment on this, and they called Lenore Skenazy to be a part of this segment. I don't know if she did or not. I don't know if the segment aired or not or if it's forthcoming. But the guest booker who wanted Lenore on the show clearly didn't know much about her philosophy. She called Lenore and says, won't this give kids the wrong idea? And she said, the only thing that gives parents the wrong idea is asking the question, won't this give parents the wrong idea? That's because in America, this is Lenore's words, not mine. That's because in America, any time that parents might somehow get even the merest notion that kids can do anything safely or successfully on their own, the media is determined to make this sound controversial, if not crazy. And she went through this when she let her nine-year-old ride the subway and then wrote about it. And in this show, Old Enough, this is a series that is so popular that it's been running for 30 years in Japan. It's under a different title there called First Errand and um, or My First Errand. They, you see a boy who's not even three years old go to the grocery store for his mother. You see a very little girl walk through town to bring her dad, uh, who's a chef, his apron. A boy of two. That's why I want to watch this show, because it's difficult for me to imagine. I have a four-and-a-half-month-old. It's difficult for me to imagine him at two years old walking into town to bring me, I don't know, uh, whatever I would need in town, a, a, a bottle opener, I don't know. A boy of two goes to the dry cleaner near his home to pick up his father's sushi uniform. This show, um, that she said, could also be a food travel log because everyone's always cooking or eating or buying delicious-looking food. One four-year-old goes to a giant seafood marketplace and wanders among the stands finding the fish that her mother wants. And there's been a lot of carping as it were, uh, you know, as as parents tend to do sometimes, about how real this reality show is, considering a camera crew is always near the kids, sometimes hidden, sometimes obvious even to the viewer. But even if the parents know their child will have this sort of escort, the kids really do have to cross the street. They really do have to talk to shopkeepers, and they really do have to find their way. So my question for you is is twofold. The minor question is, one, have you seen this show And what do you think of these kids doing these kinds of errands? 800-848-WABC. I'm going to watch this show. I haven't seen it. And the second question is, how young is too young to have children do these sorts of errands? I'm not talking about having a three-year-old drive when his parent is too sober, too drunk to do so. I'm not talking about having a four-year-old 
go to Walmart uh, and pick out a gun. I'm not talking about having a, a child go to the um, go to the machete store and tr- pick out the sharpest machete. I'm talking about run-of-the-mill errands exactly like what I just described. You go to the dry cleaner, you pick up dry cleaning. You go to the grocery store, you buy a gallon of the milk. How young, because my wife and I are going to be faced with this question very soon, how young is too young for a child to do an errand? Would you let a three-year-old? Would you let a four-year-old? Would you let a two-year-old? Because apparently there are some on this show that are doing it at two. And do you share the concern that some people have that this reality show really isn't reality? Because, look, the three-year-old's not really alone. The camera guy's right there. If anything happens, anyone tries to accept, you know, abduct the three-year-old, the camera guy's right there to capture it all on camera and to stop him. What say you? How young is too young? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you, my wife and I are both very much looking forward to having Carmine be old enough to change the kitty litter in the kitty litter box, in the litter box. I'm looking forward to having his help and then eventually transitioning to him just doing it, doing all the recyclables, uh, putting together the cardboard and the cans and the bottles and putting, bringing them out to the curb when the recycling comes. Oh, today is garbage day for us, actually. Um, no, it's good to know. And, uh, you know, even when he gets a little older, I collect all these cans and bottles and bring them to the grocery store and cash them in. I'm looking forward to him being able to do that. Lenore writes that children desperately want to help out. And by doing so, you can almost see them growing a little taller. These aren't precious pets. They're young humans desperate to take their place in the world. The desire to be a little help, according to anthropologist David Lancey, peaks at what age? According to anthropologist David Lancey, the desire to be a little helper peaks in kids age three or four. If that desire is not fulfilled, If the kids are never trusted to do anything real, that desire disappears. Isn't that interesting? In America, where kids are suffering from ever-climbing rates of anxiety and depression, it's hard not to wonder whether extinguishing a generation's desire to be helpful and brave is really making them safer. They're not safer from feeling useless. They're not safer from feeling like babies. So if this show, Old Enough, reminds America of just how competent kids can be when we let them, even as it pushes the media to pivot from, they could get hurt, to they sure are plucky, we just might see kids out and about on their own, competent, confident, ready for that next challenge. It still does seem, two I feel like is too young. Three, I'm ready to have the kid run all sorts of errands, right? Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. I know not of which I speak. What do you think, Kevin's in Brooklyn? Hello, Kevin. Yeah, um, I I I, I drive a bus from Brooklyn, and I've seen like I go through like the Hasidic neighborhoods, and I've seen two year olds, three year olds pushing baby strollers, going to go to the way, going to the supermarkets, going to the shops all the time. You know, it's funny. I've noticed that too, and I wondered. 
about, um, I guess about 13 years ago, when Lebi Kletsky, that um, young Orthodox Jewish boy, was abducted and killed, if that would change in neighborhoods like Borough Park and other primarily Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods. And it hasn't. Uh, because I drive through those same neighborhoods, too, and I've noticed the same thing. They're not usually quite two or three. I think they're usually at least five or six. Right, Kevin? I mean, would you say they're any younger than any younger than five? I've seen, like, four-year-olds. Oh, really? I've seen it all the time, and I'm like, why is this kids by themselves going to the – I'm telling you, I see it every single day. I go home, I tell my wife – I be like, cause I got a uh, eight year old, and I won't even let her go in the hallway. And I'm like, these kids are like four, you know, probably five, going on the merry old way, and I see it every day. Well, does let me ask you that, Kevin? Does seeing the the Orthodox Jewish children behave independently? Does that ever inspire you or your wife to say, well, maybe we should give our eight year old a little bit more freedom? No, not in a million years. All my kids usually, you know, they'll eventually take the bus or the train to go to school. At but what at age? Least by at what? 11 years old. 11. Okay, 11. So you're not doing the Lenore Skenazy and letting uh, your kid do it at nine. Uh, how come, Kevin? How come? Well, you know, just anything could happen. You know, your kids could just disappear. And I'm like, I'm all my, I got six children, and all my children started basically even going to the supermarket at least probably 10 and a half school 11 and i've seen this happening like you know i i drive to uh uh williamsburg i'm like why is this and, you know most of the time they're like pushing a stroller with like a three-year-old with them and they're just going the merry old way yeah very interesting kevin thank you well look it's working for them right with the exception of that levy kletsky case which i'm not uh diminishing how what a tragedy that was. You don't hear about these four-year-olds in Borough Park being abducted. And Kevin's right. They do go out there doing all these errands on their own. They're out there. And it's that tradition trusts these children to be independent enough to do these errands. And I'm curious if people have seen this show old enough, 800-848-WABC, and what you think of it. And if you agree with Kevin... Or you agree more with Lenore Skenazy. He says his kid is not taking the train until 11. I can't imagine making my child wait till 11 to take the train. I, I like eight or nine years old as a good train age. Three, I feel like, is a little young for errands when you're talking about crossing the street and things of that nature. But maybe that's why I'm going to watch this show old enough and see if maybe maybe I will change my tune. 800-848-9222. Pamela is in Central Jersey. Hello, Pamela. In some ways, our society's become decadent, and you got to be careful, but we are also overprotective with our children. Right. I mean, I I used to go to the liquor store to pick up uh, packs of cigarettes for my dad. I didn't become a dope fiend or an alcoholic. I mean, it was legal back then, and we thought nothing of it. I used to run lawnmowers. And do landscaping in the yard, and I loved it. My my interest came out, and my parents, of course, with some supervision. Now, I think eight or nine is when the brain develops enough to do the hard tasks. Uh, I think three and four, you know, taking the train or going through those city streets, um, you know, maybe if you're hidden somewhere watching, watching them okay, do it. That's okay. a little too young. Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds pretty responsible, uh, Pamela. Hey, why do you think we went from an era, because – 
there wasn't less crime when you were a girl. There was more crime uh, than there is now, statistically. Um, right, right. But so why do you think that happened? Why did we go from an era where you at uh, seven, eight, nine, ten could be trusted to run errands, including going to store to buy cigarettes for your dad, to now um, Kevin, who seems like a very well-intentioned guy and a, a very devoted father, he won't even let um, his child take the train until she's 11. Why did that happen? And then I'll give you my I answer as to why I think it might have happened. There was that era of helicopter parents. Mm-hmm. And um, the 80s was that materialistic. It almost was like, um, you know, you are my possession and I'm going to protect you. And uh, instead of the reverse that should have happened, you are a human being that has to learn to be independent and go out there and flourish. Yeah. Pamela, uh, great points all. Wonderful call. Thank you. It's funny. I I think Pamela's right. And I had I hadn't thought about her answer. I th- do think these generations are cyclical to some extent. Strauss and Howe are a pair of uh, generational theorists that have written a lot about this. And I've tried to get um, Neil Howe uh, on this show uh, to talk about this. And he wasn't available and whatever. And I think Strauss passed away. One of them passed away. One of them still alive. Uh, yeah. No, uh, Strauss passed away. That's what I thought. Neil Howe still left. So I'm, I'm going to try again to get Neil Howe on this show. But the other role, I, the other thing that I think is at play here is the media. Because um, crime was worse 50 years ago than it is now. That's a fact. It's a fact. Um, yet parents didn't worry about someone snatching their 7-year-old or their 8-year-old off the street. I believe that that's because when a child is abducted these days, whether it's Jean Benet Ramsey or Levy Kletsky or Eitan Pates, you see essentially wall to wall media coverage. You see all sorts of media coverage of it. And so the parents read about this in the paper, they see this on the news, and they think this could happen to their child when statistically it's not likely to happen. Uh, a court, and, th- and going back to my conversations with Lenore on this front, that's why I'm sorry that she so often is not up for these early morning conversations. Um, but she said if you wanted to have your child kidnapped, you wanted him kidnapped, you would have to leave that child alone statistically for about 65,000 years before he's kidnapped. So it's very unlikely. Yet parents today in 2020 feel that it's much more likely than the parents of 1970 did. Why? What changed? Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Al, I got you. Yeah, you got me. Yeah, Frank. I'm here. What's on your mind, pal? Just listening. And, um, you know, uh, to, uh, to make a point about the Orthodox people, I see it happening every night because I deliver around those areas at nighttime. And just tonight, even tonight, there must have been some kind of holiday. I see little kids dancing around. But you got to remember, they say it takes a village to raise a child. That's the village. Everybody knows the kids. So when somebody sends, somebody sends their kid to get something at the store, you got a hundred eyes looking at that kid. And, uh, you know, so they feel protected that way. And they all answer to one person, their rabbi. 
their rabbi takes care of all the problems. So if there's ever a dispute, they all respect the rabbi and they go, they follow what what, what he says. But like we're watching that yeah. child. Yeah, that's fair. It's like the big family, extended yeah, family. That, that's a now, fair point. With my, kids, uh, with my kids, when they were, were growing up, I would never, this this uh, lady you're talking about, uh, uh, I would never do what she said because I'm of the old school now, which uh, actually uh, I, I, I blows my mind that you said that crime was more rampant 50 years ago than today. Oh, oh I, significantly. Well, I see maybe... A crime like that, but violent crime, it's got to be much more today than it was 50 years ago. So I knew when crack came into existence, see, the wilder the drug, the wild, wilder the crime. When people were smoking marijuana back in the 70s, it was like a big thing. Oh, my God, look at this person. Look at this drug addict. And it wasn't so bad. It was much worse than people let on that it was. But when crack came into existence, then you started noticing the crimes were more violent. The the killings were more violent. So a lot of that is centered around drugs, too. And uh, so my kids, I always led by example. You know, they would follow what I did, and I would show them, and then they would catch on. Uh, for, for example, they, they knew how to drive a car when they were 13 years old. Why? Not because they let them drive a car. I would take them to amusement parks and put them in the gold cars. Yeah, um, would drive yeah. I want to. I want to get in some other people here, Al, before we before we have to go to the thousand dollar minute. But no, uh, violent crime was not um, is not more common now than it was in nineteen seventy or nineteen eighty. Uh, it was not. Uh, that's a fact. You can look this up um, in twenty nineteen, for instance. The population was three hundred and twenty eight million people, roughly. 16,000 murders in this country in 19 pick a year. You want to go to 1980? The population was almost 100 million less, actually more than 100 million less. 1980, uh, there was uh, 225 million people. There were 23,000 murders. Even though we had 100 million less people, there were still 7,000 more people being murdered. You want to go back further in 1970? The population was 200 million. There was the same amount of people being murdered then as there are now. Uh, so percentage-wise, violent crime was much worse, much worse back then. Not even, not even close. Not even close. Uh, I want to squeeze in at least a couple more people uh, before we get to uh, the thousand-dollar minute. Uh, Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, good morning, Frank. Listen, I have twin daughters. They're thirteen years old. And forget about letting them go to the store on their own. My wife still has to get their clothes out of the drawer for them. <laughs> it's hilarious. But the, the thing of yesterday, the children of yesterday, those are the parents of today. And I think what they feel is that they had too much freedom growing up because I'm 50. And these are the parents that are, you know, have kids today. And these are the ones that are... You know, they're very, uh, what you would call, um, very protective of their kids. Well, let them go anywhere. They probably felt that they had too much freedom and they don't want to be that way with their kids. See, that that's, uh, that's mean, an interesting point, Paul, because we all are a byproduct of our, our upbringing. And, and Strauss and Howe, those generation and get back to work, Paul. Strauss and Howe, those generational theorists that I discussed a minute ago, they talk about this, that the the 
patterns of one generation leads to a style of child rearing in the next generation, which then leads to that generation behaving in a certain way. It's really interesting stuff. Not everybody buys into it. I I tend to. My friend Rich Hoffman turned me into the – what you said though, Paul – about your 13-year-old not even being permitted to pick out their own clothes, I think that's a real shame. If I'm, you know, I'm not questioning anybody's parenting style. Uh, I can't even get my son to sleep uh, two nights in a row without without screaming his head off. So I'm the last person that's going to give anybody parenting advice. But um, if if that were my son, I would be really disappointed if my 13-year-old wasn't independent enough to take the train, to take the bus. I was taking the train and the bus at 13 for years, for years. I'm trying to think when I started taking the train and the bus on my own. I think 10, maybe 11, 10 or 11, I'll say. But I feel like I could have done it much earlier. And I think it would have made me a more independent person, more self-reliant. So I got an email here from a gentleman who says – What if you let – and again, I want to see this show because I want to see how the parents deal with some of these questions. What if you send your three-year-old to the store and you never see it again? And that's that. I say when it's old enough to defend itself somewhat. Well, that's the thing though. You could send your 10-year-old to the store and never see him again. You could send your 15-year-old to the store and never see him again. Uh, 17, 18, once they start driving – they could be they could be hit by a drunk driver through no fault of their own. That can happen at any age. It's statistically unlikely to happen. Um, it could happen at any age. So I'm going to watch the show on Netflix. I- I'm curious if anyone has seen the show. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. It's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're getting two more calls here. Uh, based on, uh, we'll do three because uh, I know a bunch of people have been holding here, and then we'll do the thousand dollar minute. And if you want to keep holding even through the thousand dollar minute, we will talk to you. But I want to give somebody an opportunity to win some money. Peter is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Peter. Hey, Frank. Uh, just uh, quickly, uh, some advice uh, as far as Strauss and How go because um, you were a little unsure before. Who's uh, yeah? How's alive? Living. How's alive? Yes. Oh, okay. Because I was going to advise you to to try to book the one who's still living. Yeah, how is, um, I've reached out to him. I'm going to reach out to him again. It's a great idea. Okay, yeah, yeah. Booking the deceased guy won't work. Uh, <laughs> anyway, a, uh, um, a, a, funny, uh, a funny story. I love it. My, uh, when I was a kid, my friend Michael, um, who was a contemporary of mine, came from a, we lived in an apartment building in the Bronx, and uh, Michael lived on the first floor. Michael came from a somewhat dysfunctional family, uh, you know, whose mother, you know, really wasn't uh, a real mothering type. And so she never bothered to wean Michael off his bottle. Uh. So Michael, Michael, get this, Michael is five years old, and he is still drinking from a bottle. Oh, my okay? goodness. Which in those days were glass bottles with the rubber nipple, which is dating about how old I am. In any event, so when Michael needed a new bottle, his mother would send him on his own around the corner to the drugstore to buy a bottle. So here's a kid who's still being bottle fed, but he's going, he's going on his own. He's running his own errand 
to buy his a bottle for himself. That is hysterical. That is absolutely hysterical. Uh, Whatever became of that young man? I don't know. uh, Unfortunately, lost track of a lot of it. But I heard that he, uh, uh, I heard that he uh, uh, became a dentist. I don't know if that's so. But I, I, I did hear that eventually he was weaned off the bottle. I would hope so. Uh, if I go to the dentist and he's still sucking on a bottle, uh, I, I better at least have some bourbon in it. Peter, thank you. 800-848-WABC. Mike in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. How you doing, Frank? Uh, you know, you talk about this. I was in the second grade when I started serving mass, and I used to have to walk, you know, a block and a half at 6 o'clock in the morning to go serve mass with the Monsignor. If I went to go visit my grandmother, who lived in another neighborhood, I would walk two blocks, two busy avenues, and I had a dollar bill. And I'd get on the bus, and I'd put the dollar bill on the tray, and the bus driver would give you change for the 15 cents then. And I would go all the way across Brooklyn to my grandmother's house, and I was seven, eight years old, like it was nothing. And I kind of think about it, and I think that you're right with the media. I think when that John Welch's kid uh, got murdered down in Florida, because my kids, I mean, my son is, my son's 38, my daughter's 41, and they have families. But if I'm around, I go everywhere with them. And I still go everywhere. Yeah. So that see, that's interesting to me is that you were you're you were raised in exactly the style of parenting that Lenore Skenazy is talking about. And yet your your children don't adhere to the same parenting philosophy that your parents did. So I'm curious, why do you think that's the case? What what changed between your parents parenting style and your children's parenting style? But, but you said it, you know, the it's media. The media. Had a lot the media. Okay. I, I think you might be right, Mike. Yeah, we got kids that drowned and things like that. You know what I mean? My oh. father used to tell me, let's go play in traffic, you know? Maybe just give me a hint. You know what I mean? <laughs> Mike, thanks. Uh, two more, and then we'll, we'll move on to the $1,000 minute. In fact, if you want to start queuing up for the $1,000 minute, be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222, and we'll get to you. Joanne is in Babylon. Hello, Joanne. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you, Joanne. We, we've we been trying to book you for weeks. I'm glad we finally got a hold of you. Right. Uh, this is such a controversial uh, topic. And to bring it up on media, this goes to show, you know, how we're, there's no supporting systems for this thing to run normally. First of all, the capacity of a little person is totally different than the capacity of an adult. We have enough problems with sociopathic things going on in this world, especially with pandemics, uh, now a war. So it's absolutely ridiculous. If a child, they have their social security number, but they don't have a license. They don't have keys. They don't know how to drive. It's all according to statistics. It's absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. All a child does is just copy what their parents do. And it would be more interesting for a parent to get to know their child in another fashion. Absolutely ridiculous. It just seems like a total lame excuse to be talking about what children should be doing. That flat out, that's my opinion. All right. Well, I appreciate it, Joanne. Thank you. I don't think it's a, a, an, a, whatever the term you used, a lame excuse or a waste of time, whatever the term you used. I 
sincerely think that if children are coddled and not given a degree of independence as a young age and trusted to do things like chores, especially when they want to do them, it leads to children that are never independent and are never able to do things on their own. You know, it's funny. And last thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention, and uh, Kevin in New Jersey, I know you've been holding for a while. We will get to you. Don't don't hang up. The last thing I'll mention, though, is I um, had I was with two friends in Atlantic City a couple of years ago, and one was a younger guy, late twenties, early thirties, and he w- and one was an older guy, around fifty years old. Both good friends of mine, both great guys, and the Marine, uh, he was a Marine veteran my friend Bill, the Marine was describing how when he was 18, he was in the Marine Corps and doing serious Marine stuff. Maybe he was 20. I think he was 18, though. And my other friend talked about how he had a son that was that age, either 18 or 20, and was not even able to get food for himself without calling his mother to cook him food or bring him food or pick up food. He was the opposite of independent. And my friend ended up saying, after listening to seeing how well-adjusted my, my other friend was, my, my, the friend who had the 20-year-old was saying how had he expected his son to be a bit more independent younger, that might, maybe he'd be a bit more independent now. And that's my view. And I think that's been borne out by the anecdotal examples that we've talked about, the statistical examples we've talked about. And I'm looking forward to seeing the show to see how these parents handle this question. I, we will give the last word on this front to Kevin in New Jersey. Kevin, I'm sorry to keep you holding, but a lot of folks wanted to weigh in. No worries, Frank. But uh, listen, I love you. I listen every night, but I think you're out of your mind. Uh, well, first of how all, in the world you a lot of people think I'm out of my mind, so you're not alone. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. But to let your child take a train, you're going to say you're going to let your son, Carmine, do it at eight or nine years old? Yes. The subways aren't even safe for adults, and you're going to let a child take a train that young on their own? But so what do you think's going to happen you're only, you're, you're, at 11? Anything could happen, Frank. Anything right, right happen. but anything I mean, can happen only, at 12 you, you, or 13. children... Your only job in the whole world once you have children is to take care of them and make sure they're safe. How in the world could they be safe taking a train at eight or nine? Listen, I was I was very independent as a kid. I had a, a, a tough upbringing. You know, my mom was in an accident when we were young. We were in orphanages and stuff. Oh, boy, so I'm sorry. I had to, I, yes, I had to, you know, grow up on the streets. And I'm talking about, you know, 45 years ago, I had people come up to me many times when I was alone on the street and tried to abduct me or whatever, you know, asked me if I wanted to ride and stuff like that. But I was, a, I was a pretty slick kid, a street, street kid. So I knew better. I ran or I screamed or I just said, get out of here or whatever. These young kids, they, they, you, it's going to happen. It's, it's if they're alone and they're, especially in, in the city on subway train, I think that's insane. My stuff. I, well, really do. I, I appreciate that, Kevin. The statistics don't bear that out though. Uh, I think uh, parents are, these days, many parents, not everybody, so many parents are of the view of let's imagine the worst thing that could possibly happen and then let's picture our, that happening to our child. I don't think that's a healthy way to be. What if you did that in every other aspect of life? What if you pictured the worst thing that could possibly happen when you get in your car or when you get to work? 
That's not a healthy way to go through life. And I think it leads to a generation of of young adults that's completely unprepared to face the challenges that that they're expected to face. The people that won World War II, people like my grandfather, who was a Purple Heart winner in World War II, they won it at 17, 18, 19 years old. The kids storming the beach in Normandy were 18, 19, 20 years old. Do you think that if they weren't allowed to ride the subway until they were 13, they would have been in any position to beat Hitler? I don't think so. I think that's one of the problems with young people today. $1,000 minute straight ahead. W-A-B-C. Bernie and Sid in the morning here for our friends at MyPillow. Mike Lindell, the inventor of MyPillow, gives back to our WABC listeners. Thanks to MyPillow, the Rosenbergs, my family, are all set in our new house with everything. And, man, do we love them, especially our brand-new mattress toppers, me, Ava, Gabriel, and Danielle. Order now, and Mike will send you his book absolutely free, What Are the Odds? The lowest prices in the history of MyPillow. Just go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio list specials and you'll see it slippers 50 percent off geezer dream sheets i love these 60 percent off as low as 39.99 the classic standard my pillow markdown from 69.98 to just 19.98 queen size my pillows down to just 24.98 using the wabc discount code deep discount folks get your home set up like mine support my pillow promo code is wabc call them 800-887-2185 that's 800-887-2185 code wabc This is Curtis Lewa. Many of you listening have aging parents that were affected during the pandemic when nursing homes took in COVID patients. Not true. The state only issued guidance to nursing homes, suggesting that they admit such patients. Even after the guidance was rescinded, nursing homes continued to admit COVID patients into their facilities. And Governor Cuomo's administration continually underreported nursing home COVID deaths by 50%. All in all, approximately 16,000 residents in long-term care facilities died of COVID in New York State. If you or a loved one contracted COVID in a nursing home, you may be entitled to financial compensation. The law firm of Crenzo, Guzman, Herbert, they're working hard to make sure that you get justly compensated from your suffering. Know your rights. Pick up the phone now. Call for your free consultation. 212-227-2900. That's 212-227-2900. The KG Law Team, 212-227-2900. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Where did I find this song? I love this. Daya look pretty. This is great. Sit still look pretty. This is great. My life story. All right. Uh, time now to give one lucky person an opportunity to win some do re mi, some moolah shmoolah. As my friend Curtis Sliwa says. By the way, Curtis doing a great job this week um, on at noon. I guess my understanding is uh, Charlie Kirk is no longer on the station. Is that right? Is that your understanding? Is that okay? So Charlie Kirk no longer on the station, and uh, Curtis at least temporarily is filling in at uh, at noon. 
Uh, I got to tell you, he's doing a great job. I um, I only got to hear a bit of it yesterday because that was, that's almost always the hour that I sleep. But he sounds great. And I have to be honest, uh, nothing against Charlie Kirk. I know he's popular. I know he's got 10 million Twitter followers. That radio show was just awful. It wasn't even a radio show. It was a podcast. It was the most boring thing I'd ever heard. So I think we're a better radio station that we have another live and local hour rather than playing some warmed-over syndicated podcast. All right, time now to give one lucky person an opportunity to win some money. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let us say hello to Bill in Peekskill. Hello, Bill. Hello, Frank. Wasn't uh, former Governor George Pataki from Peekskill? Yes, sir. W- were you there when he was the mayor? I was. How was he as a mayor? Excellent. Really? Okay. Um, I got to say, I've gotten to know him a little bit. He seems like a a really great guy, actually. I'm sorry. uh, I'm almost sorry that I I never voted for him because uh, he seems like a great guy, really dedicated, and he's doing a lot to help the the Ukrainians now. Bill, uh, you've heard this contest before, I imagine? Yes. Okay, great. So um, for people that are listening for the first time, Bill's going to have to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, if he gets one right, we're just moving on to the next question. If he does it all, then he wins $1,000. It is time for us to get started, if you're ready, Bill. I'm ready. What do chickens lay? Egg. What is the name of Andrew Cuomo's brother? Chris. What state is known as the Sunshine State? Florida. Who wrote and directed the first Star Wars movie? George Lucas. What baseball player has the most career hits? Ty Cobb. Ah, no. Uh, unfortunately, Pete Rose. Oh, Pete Rose. Pete Rose. That's a good guess, though. Oh, no. That he, it used to be Ty Cobb. If we were playing this game 40 years ago, you would have been right. <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, but uh, yeah, it is. Are you are you a baseball fan? Yeah, a little bit. All right. Well, yeah. Ty Cobb is second. He's got uh, 40, 40, 4,100 hits basically. I think I Pete Rose. So you were close. You were close. All right. I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to give you a constellation prize of a, a shirt or something. I hope you wear it proudly all over Peak Skill. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for listening. But, hey, by the way, if you want to purchase anything from the WABC radio store you can go to wabcradiostore.com there's a ton of great merchandise based on our show up there uh, we have hats we have shirts i would just love it this has not yet happened to me but i would love as um if i went to the grocery store and it's just filled with eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds running errands for their parents i'm just kidding on that front I would love if I went to the grocery store or whatever type of store or casino in Atlantic City and the place was just crawling with strangers wearing the other side of midnight shirts because there's a lot of great merchandise. We have a fleece hoodie, uh, which is looks very comfortable. I don't even have one of these, but I want to buy one. Uh, it's 50% cotton, 50% polyester. We have a the other side of midnight backpack. We've got T-shirts. 
We've got a fleece blanket. We've got a travel mug. We had one of those around here, and it was pilfered. Somebody took it. I don't know who. We have a good old-fashioned mug. We have a beer stein with my name on it. How cool is that? Really? Is that you could actually get a Frank Morano beer stein and have right in front of you Frank and Stein. How neat is that? It's great. Love that. Uh, so it, what we'd like for you to do, buy something over at WABCRadioStore.com. You can find all the stuff with my name on it just by searching Morano. And then you can um, take a photo of yourself using it and then tweet us. Tweet us or uh, put it in the Facebook group. If you want to join the Facebook group, that's... Um, uh, just search Morano Radio fans and haters, and hopefully other people will do the same, and we'll get it to be like a viral trend. Can't you see that being one of those things that hipsters take to, that they all start wearing these the other side of midnight shirts all over Williamsburg or something, or Jersey City or wherever the hipsters live now, Astoria? Ooh, yeah. That's a big hipster spot. You go into one of these dive bars that's super expensive because it's so hip to be there, and all you see is like, uh, I don't know, like vintage video game T-shirts and Frank Morano hoodies. That See, that's where I belong. So help us out. Buy one of these. I don't get any money from it, uh, but I get a lot of satisfaction. <laughs> so go to WABCRadioStore.com, search Morano. I think if you use the promo code FRANK15, you can actually go and get uh, a pretty significant discount as well. We're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds in just a minute. I would love to know who left this one-third remaining cup of tea in the studio. I got to tell you, at least once a week, someone, sometimes it's the program director Sometimes it's the director of HR. Sometimes it's uh, Dan Herschel. I'm sure sometimes it's Jake the Snake Roberts. At least once a week, somebody sends out a memo to the entire staff, clean up after yourselves. Your mom doesn't work here where the maintenance staff doesn't come in on the weekend. And people still leave around their trash. So they're time right now. Time after time after time after time. <laughs> Love Dominic. When does it stop? somebody left a disposable brown cup in here. When does it stop? With tea. And the tea bag is still in it. And let's see. Let's see who this is. See, um, it's green tea. There are... No, is it green tea? It's green tea. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. It's and there's horrible, two horrible. tea bags in here. Take a look. I'm holding it up to the microphone so everybody could see it. Uh, I don't see any lipstick. So I'm thinking that's not Rita, probably not Lydia. Ah. Who would have drank? <laughs> Matt Blaze, do you know who this is? Who is it? It's Dominic? This is Dominic. Jeez. Time Dom after time after time after time after Dominic time. is such a nice guy. He doesn't strike me as the type of person that would leave garbage lying around for someone to clean up. But that's precisely what he just did. Dominic just now I, I I'm gonna throw this away now. <sighs> I must say I'm disappointed. Dominic is uh falling off that pedestal that I had him on. Great journalist, great talk show host, number one in the ratings in his time slot, but he is someone that I whenever I talk to him now, 
I will always see as someone that leaves garbage lying around for his colleagues to clean up. And I got to tell you, that's pretty disappointing. 15 seconds of fame um, straight ahead. 800-848-9222 if you want to be heard. That's 800-848-9222. You can comment on whatever you want for 15 seconds. And uh, we don't screen the calls for content. So please just don't use any profanity. Don't uh, attack any of the other hosts. Don't be too weird. And we're happy to have your contribution on any subject. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. W-A-B-C. Hey, folks, it's early April. Summer's right around the corner. Time to lose that winter weight and be fit and healthy by the summer with NJ Diet. This is my good buddy, Dr. Arthur Turovitz. It only takes 40 days to lose 20 to 40-plus pounds. The contractually guaranteed money-back program is unlike any diet plan you've ever heard of before. Trust me. It starts with bioenergetically personalized supplements based on your hair, saliva, and blood work. Then, NJ Diet uses DNA testing to create your ideal diet plan and workout regimen, help you keep the weight off for the rest of your life. NJ Diet is all natural, no shots, no hormones. Hormones, no surgery, and no dreaded prepackaged foods. You're fully monitored to make sure you are burning fat and not just losing water. And you'll also get the doctor's personal email and phone number. They've got locations throughout the tri-state area or from home with live online video consultations. Lose a contractually guaranteed 20 to 40 plus pounds in only 40 days. It's the best plan out there, trust me. Call today, 855-5NJ-DIET or log on to NJDiet.com. Go to NJDiet.com and lose the weight for good today. Listen to Rudy Johnny every weekday at 3.55 p.m. For the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Mayor's Final Thoughts. Rudy gives his insightful, most candid, and important final thought of the day on topics affecting our community, our nation, and you. The Mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Mayor's Final Thoughts. Weekdays at 3.55 p.m. on 77 WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. love this song. What I'm about to tell you sounds made up, like the kind of thing Curtis would make up, but it's totally true. This song by Steve G and the uh, TMC band has become so popular from us playing this on this song that so many people have asked for this song. Really? That they're now selling this song Available for download, and it's flying off the digital shelves. 
Wow. So if you want to buy this song for 99 cents, you can download it at Amazon Music, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Pandora. And it's only 99 cents, a lot cheaper than a gallon of gas, and it gets a lot more mileage, too. The best way to find it is to search for the artist, Stephen J. Gallo, not Callow, like Jerry Callow, Gallo, Stephen J. Gallo, or Steve G, G-E-E, and the TMC band. I think it would be great if this guy made a song for our show and it became a bestseller just because of our fans. So I'll be downloading it. I hope you will, too. So just search Steve Gallo on any of those platforms that I just mentioned. You can download The Other Side of Midnight uh, for 99 cents. All right. um, 800-848-9222. It's time for you to be heard for 15 seconds because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Fame! Fredericks on Staten Island. Yeah, Frank. Do you think if Mayor Eric Adams opens the former city of Brooklyn that uh, President Biden will have better ratings and win the election? Tommy's in Brooklyn. Hi, we think we need to uh, watch out for our border crossing. This world is being over overrun. The United States being overrun and Biden is a traitor. John in Queens. The rise and fall of this Anglo-Saxon empire. Gary on Staten Island. Elon Musk does like a huge load of business with China. So it is ironic to hear him praised by uh, the right wing. The Tesla is made in China, is it not? Uh, You know better than me. Gary in Pennsylvania. Sid Rosenberg is not a moron. There you go. Peter in Manhattan. To the city inspectors, please inform the restaurant 125 First Avenue. If you're going to leave your cellar doors open, put up a barrier to prevent visually impaired and elderly from falling in. And don't respond by saying, everybody's doing it. Frank in Brooklyn. It's Fred. But I go to Atlantic City regularly. I have never gone to any of the local casinos in Manhattan. I enjoy the drive too much to not go to Atlantic City. Awesome. I'll see you out there. 800-848-9222. Neil on Staten Island. Yes, uh, Curtis and the Gottis were both at your wedding reception. At the end of the reception, did John Gotti Jr. ask Curtis if you could call him a cab? (laughs) (laughs) Joe in New York City. Sid's a moron. Sid's a moron. Sid's a moron. 800-848-9222. Anthony in Edison. Uh, yes, good morning to all the wacky school board members out there. Stop teaching our kids all this CRT, woke, and gender study crap, you know, in the early ages and the early grades. Get back to the regular re- reading, writing, arithmetic, and turn social studies back into the word history. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, on that note, we will end it there. Um, hey, uh, Bernie and Sid coming up at 6. Chris Christie going on with Deb Valentine today in the 5 o'clock hours, I understand it. At least that's a promo that I heard. That'll be interesting. Uh, on the Bernie and Sid show, it's going to be interesting. They have Chris Mad Dog Russo on at 740, Bill O'Reilly at 840, Lee Zeldin at 9, and one of my favorites, guy who's been a guest on this show, Tom Dreesen, the opening act for Frank Sinatra on the 9 o'clock hours. Well, I'll be listening. I may have to stay awake. All right, I'll be back at 1 a.m., two hours of Ask Frank Anything tomorrow. Come armed with good questions. Frank Morano, good day. Rudy 
Giuliani. I want to talk about something right here. Is on. Affecting you and me. America's mayor. The mayor of New York City. Rudy Giuliani. Is here to talk to you. Weekdays at 3.55 p.m. Listen to Rudy Giuliani for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation Mayor's Final Thoughts. Talk Radio 77 WABC and WABCRadio.com. Radio 77 WABC. Brian Kilmeade. Entertaining and informative. If these truck drivers bring real life to them, express their outrage, you can't just ruin people's lives, destroy the mental and emotional health of kids, and go ahead and go about your life. We understand that you're living a double life that you're forcing us to go through. Brian Kilmeade. Weekdays 10 to noon after Bernie and Sid in the morning. Talk Radio 77 WABC. WABC Radio is proud to celebrate 100 years. From October 1st, 1921, to music radio, to talk radio's crown jewel, worldwide and beyond. WABC And WLIRFM Hampton Bays. The Rooster.